0: Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Thursday morning, November second, eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Our number. Good morning, Josh. Good morning. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. So, Joe Biden is calling for a humanitarian ceasefire in the ongoing war, which is a full fledged war now uh, between uh, Hamas in Gaza and uh, the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces. Or defense federation, which is the defense forces, or defense—I think it's forces. forces. I'm not mistaken. Now, as Israeli um, defense forces, I want to—I want to segue. I mean, you know, I—I want to say this before we begin uh, this radio show. I believe the last two weeks have been about as good as we can do at engaging an audience, inviting an audience, welcoming an audience, listening to an audience. take into account what the audience is saying about point A, B, or C. Um, It is really, to me, where talk radio excels. I mean, in all honesty, and I understand the reputation of talk radio. Juan Williams, you know, I know what the poll says today, but them radio boys haven't got to work yet. And once they do, you know how rambunctious they are, and you know how red meat they can be. Um, But there's an absolute appropriate place for that. Um, I've argued that when talk radio is red meat, it's simply the equal and opposite reaction to the mainstream media. But I mean, the mainstream media has become very red meaty. Um, I mean, they, they just graduated from elite universities. But I mean, they they're, they're propagandizing so, some, of the, um, some of the same aspects or opinions, just on the, on the other side. They're aggressively giving um, their opinions. And we'll stay in this lane for as long as you choose, but I don't know where to go from here. I mean, I was thinking about it this morning riding over. We have talked as extensively as I know how to about the situation that part of the world finds itself in and what America should or should not do. I mean, if we spent a couple of weeks trying to better understand that region of the world, that, that sacred piece of land. Um, I think one of the things we stumbled on yesterday, very often when we have these conversations, you'll stumble on something, and you're kind of, wow, okay, that makes sense. If in the beginning God had a chosen people, how does it not stay complicated? I am mean, just kind of ponder that for a second. In the beginning, here's here's a question for you, Josh. You ready? First question of the morning. Was Adam a Jew?
1: Uh, that's a good question. That's yeah, a I... real good
0: question. I can't find an answer. I find some um some varying opinions. But I mean you know, Dennis Prager, he would be a um a Jewish media figure um, says that you know the Jews basically created or or began civilization. Well, I mean, the insinuating that Adam was a Jew. I mean, it, what what I th- th- it's almost like when you answer the ten most important questions, there's ten more important questions, and then ten more. It reminds me as a host and somebody who's responsible for sitting behind the microphone with some degree of understanding. It reminds me of the Fed. I mean, I, I remember when I set out to try and better understand the Fed. It was a little bit like the uh, the Seinfeld episode with, um, well, you know, the um the reservations.
2: Oh, yeah. The the car
0: rental yeah. reservation. You know what? You know, or, or write-offs. Oh, write-offs. Yeah, write-offs. Yeah. You yeah. know. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. You don't know what they are. You don't either. But they do it. They, they do, do it, it, it all the time. Yeah, yeah, they do it all the time. You don't even know what a write-off is. No, but they do it. So when historically, when you have said, well, you know how those Jews and Palestinians are, do you? I mean, what does that mean? You know how those Jews and Palestine guy drinking a Bud Light, you know, and, and he plops his beer down. You know about those Jews and Palestinians, don't you? No, I don't. Tell me about it. No, you know. <laughs> you, you know how they are. Well, no, I mean, it, it's, it's, it is extremely, extremely, extremely complicated. The one ingredient this story has that the Fed doesn't have is the Bible. Prophecy. uh, Biblical fulfillment. What does Scripture say in Deuteronomy? What does uh, Revelations imply? Josh is freaking me out yesterday, quoting some of the um, symbolism in in Revelation. Um, Sat down with a Jewish friend of mine yesterday. And I've got, I don't know, three, four, five Jewish friends. Got two pretty close friends. Um, The others would be friends, but not, you know, real close. They're not the kind of guy you expect to show up when your ox gets in the ditch. I got two Jewish friends who are, and I'm that for them. Um, We were talking yesterday. It's kind of interesting. Josh was talking about Jesus and the the, the Muslims and the the prominence of Jesus in that religion, the prominence of Jesus in, in the Jewish religion. And my friend said... it was. Jesus is not prominent at all in the Jewish faith. I mean, he's very prominent in the Muslim faith. Um, I mean, he's similar to Muhammad, uh, but, but he, he's, he would be a prophet. Um, in the Jewish faith, it's, it's not a very prominent figure at all. Um, and then my friends said, it's so interesting to get that. I need to read that sequel. I mean, I, I need to read, you know, Rocky II to make sure I understand where you guys come from. He has the utmost respect for where we come from. I mean, he never insults me about my belief and 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 why I think this is true and and what I based my life on. But but I basically I, I kind of gave him a summary. I said, you've got these four gospel accountings of the life of Christ. I mean, they, they're they're consistent, but they vary. Is that fair, Josh? I mean, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John. I mean, they, they tell the story of the uh, the beginning of the new covenant. Right. When when Christ comes to earth, they tell that story. Through his crucifixion, and then I said, and then you've got these these books that i mean go go out and make believers of all the great commission um and and I said so a lot of the a lot of the the New Testament after the four gospels is Paul and some of the others disciples, some of the I don't know the, the post resurrection they would be the ones that advanced the Christian church I mean they basically built Peter. I mean, if you want to really, Peter would have been the first Pope. And Peter and Paul, probably more than anybody, advanced the cause of Christianity in the world after Jesus was was crucified. And then, I tell them, and then you got this spooky book at the end, Revelations, you know, and it it, it freaks us out. I know it'll freak you out because it freaks us out. And it's been interpreted, and it's been studied, and it has symbolism But but I you know you you kind of you got the four gospels that talk about the life of Christ account for the life of Christ you got the you know the the uh, the Paul's letters Uh, and that's not everything after that but I mean a lot the essentials of the New Testament would include Paul's letters as he advances the Christian church and Christianity uh, around the world around that part of the world where people lived at that time and then you've got at the end you've got this you know this uh. That this, uh, I mean, John writes these visions, you know, and these inspirations that God that God gives him. And his word to me was, "Oh, okay, okay." Um, but that is kind of true. And I mean, it, I'm not a scholar, I'm not theological, but I mean, I've read the New Testament. That's my, what my interpretation of the New Testament is. And there's some, I mean, th- th- there's some talk in the New Testament about Israel, you know, and the Jewish people and it's just it's a complicated, complicated matter. I'm just afraid that we're going to lose focus on some of these others. Um, I'm doing a podcast this afternoon with Dr. Scott Coppin. Uh, many of you remember Scott from coming on the show every Tuesday with Dr. Will Bolt, but Scott got a promotion at work, and most of his uh, responsibilities were in the morning. And he couldn't come into the studio and be a host. But Scott has the most extensive understanding of that part of the world, its political and cultural and religious um, components, as anybody I know. So Scott's agreed to sit down with us this afternoon and do a podcast. And I am so excited about doing it. I mean, I I truly am. I mean, I've got a, a hundred questions that'll probably lead to a hundred more questions and once again, Scott is an expert. I mean, Scott is fully qualified to go on Fox or CNN or to sit down at Yale or Harvard or Princeton and and represent a a very scholarly and academic understanding of the historical story of Israel. Uh, the Palestinians, guys of the West Bank, the the the, uh, the God of Abraham, uh, the King King David and thousand B C. But but I just think we gotta not pump the brakes, Reb, but we gotta um I mean we gotta get on to some other to some other things. Uh, this is not a course. I was thinking about Dr. <laughs> Bolt. You know, th- this is not, hey, this week we're going to study the, the Dust Bowl. Next week, we're, you, this is where I'm headed. I mean, this week but we're But it's going been to, interesting. But it's been very interesting to me. Yeah, and, and different. And, and, and I want to say this. It's been, I mean, it's been the most exciting time I've ever had on this radio show. Because you really? out there, well, I mean, the, 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 our listeners have been so impressive in their pronouncements and opinions and their understanding and comprehending uh, of what we're dealing with, because it is different. And um, and despite where Josh lands here, I, I think Josh understands why the majority of us feel differently about Israel than we do Ukraine, because church is a big part of the South. And the biblical worldview is probably more entrenched in this part of the world than I mean, Ray was talking about growing up in Cincinnati, and it's just different. I mean, it's just you know, in the South, and I'm not saying we're better than anybody, but church is a big part of of the South. And, you don't and, call and it the Bible Belt for nothing. Yeah, but it, you're right. I mean, it's just it is what it is. When that began, why it's that way? You know, why do people in the Midwest and North not go to the West, not go to church? I don't. I don't know. Don't have any idea. I've never lived in the Midwest. I've never lived in the in the Northeast. I, I've lived in the South. And in the South on Sunday morning, a lot of people go to church. Not as many as did, but, but church is a big part of this. And church is where you learn uh, the Bible. And church is where you have Sunday school and vacation Bible school. And you begin to develop, so, you know, so some of these understandings. And you have a Sunday school teacher or a pastor or a youth leader that had an impact on your life. So it's not just a geopolitical affair. It's a geopolitical affair in combination with a worldview that you've adopted, because you were not forced to go to church. Not a young kid. I was forced to go to church when I got to the rebellious age. Guess what I did? I stayed out too late on Saturday nights and spent a night with friends, so my mom wouldn't wake me up to make me uh, go to church. That would be the um, the developing the developing years. But but anyway, um, I want to thank you, and I mean this sincerely. Thank you for agreeing to participate in whatever it is we've tried to do over the last two weeks. It has been a lot of fun for me. We've learned together. We've questioned one another. We've argued a little bit with one another. We've had opinions out here and an opinion or two out there. Um, we've never censored the opinion. I heard somebody yesterday on a talk show say something about, remember, um, what's the guy's name? He called Dabo. Is it? Well, not Tyler, 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 I think it's Travis, Tyler from Spartanburg. um, and the guy was on the radio saying, here's how it goes down. You have a screener. And the screener says, Tyler, what do you want to talk about? And Tyler says, I want to talk about Dabo making too much money and being four and four. Click. We're not having that. We've never done that. And we'll never do that. I- I'll say this. I mean, it's, it's a little bit, I mean, it's, it's not as intimate with me because it's Clemson. But I would hope that Shane Beamer would never, ever allow a screener to not let someone and criticize him about his coaching job. But, but the guy yesterday on the talk show said, that's just not the way it works. I mean, when Tyler, now he said sometimes they'll, you know, they, they'll lie to you and say, I want to talk to him about, you know, keep your head up coach and we'll figure this thing out together and how injured is uh, Shipley. And then he gets on and says that. But, but I, I just believe that call in radio. But I mean, if you're inviting people to call in, then you're inviting people to call in. I mean, if, if we're not a call-in radio show, then let's admit we're not a call-in radio show. Let's admit we're sunshine pumpers. I mean, I'm going to Josh at the end of this break. Josh, if anybody calls in and tells me how great I am, you let them on the air. <laughs> but if someone disagrees with the opinion of the host, you shut them down right there. <laughs> you don't let them. That's just not what this is about. And, and, and I, you know, whomever was saying that yesterday doesn't need to be in the call-in talk radio show business because Tyler has a right to call in and take Dabo to task about making, you know, $11 million a year yeah, and being four and four. And Dabo has every right to defend his term sure he does. and defend his program yeah. and defend his record. That's just, I mean, it's authentic. It's real. it It's, there's, there's something about it. But if you're not that.
2: allowing those calls to call in, then you're not really a call in talk oh. show.
0: You're basically a, a promotion event. Exactly. And and we choose to not be that. 843 661 Oh nine three seven is our number. We'll take a break. Be back in a few. Eight four three six six one oh nine three seven. When that thing says former lieutenant governor, I think of Andre Bauer. Andre, remember Josh? We said yesterday Jesus is a hundred percent God, hundred percent man. Yes, sir. You, you figure that out. I can't. Andre Bauer's former and current lieutenant governor. <laughs> Andre's a little bit like Jesus. He's a hundred percent former lieutenant governor and he's a hundred percent current lieutenant lieutenant governor. And so okay, Josh probably does. He doesn't know. But he Andre. does. But I mean, anyway. You, I'll tell you that story another day. Um, let's go to the
2: phone. Someone's there. Susan in Florence. Good morning. You're on the air.
3: Good morning. This is your Jewish friend uh, from Florence. How are you? The Bible. I'm good. How are you? We're well. Uh, Bible, Old Testament lesson. Abraham was the first Jewish person when uh, he was told by God to circumcise all of the Jewish men. Before Abraham, there were
0: no Jews. So Adam was not a Jew?
3: No, there were no Jews before um, Abraham.
0: Okay, fair enough. Thank you, ma'am. appreciate that lesson. Uh, As my Jewish friend says, um, why did you guys have to add a sequel? You know, the Old Testament was perfectly fine uh, sitting there, you know, guiding the world. It's beacon- of hope. Well, God
1: and, didn't think so.
0: But, I mean, you're right. I mean, as far as you and I are concerned, right. uh, God didn't think so. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there.
2: Sam and Cross Hill. Hello, Sam. You're on.
4: Uh, good morning. Uh, fellas, I, I agree with you, Ken. Uh, this this has been one of the greatest two weeks uh, of this, of your talk show uh, series since I've been listening. Anyway, I've learned so much, and, and you've really got me thinking a lot. And uh, I, I sometimes would get in trouble with one of my former preachers when I would say that uh, – you know the god of the old testament to me seems to be a rather angry god uh, yes he chose the jews as his people but boy did they ever make him angry and mad and and, and uh, you know they had to go through some toils and troubles as a, as a result of that uh, but then in the new testament uh, he sends his son and when he becomes you know, he's the father of us all, but there he has sent his son. He, 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 he is really, truly a father. He sort of um, turns into a a, a a milder God, let's just say. And uh, he's very pleased with his son as as Jesus does his, uh, does his work on, on this earth. And what I've really enjoyed in, is, is how you brought Josh into this. And, you know, I'm 71 years old, and Josh is a young biologist. Heading out, and I'm really uh, excited uh, that he's a part of the program. And he really got me thinking yesterday when he talked about the chosen people, and and really kind of the light bulb sort of went off when he, you know, said that yes, God chose the Jews, but then He sends His Son, and and there's the directive there. And you said that you set it up real good this morning too, Ken, as you described the four Gospels and then uh, the the writings of, of of Paul throughout the other books in the, in the new Testament. And Josh, when Josh said he sends his, he sends his son and the role of his son is to spread the good news. And it's like in the new Testament, God says to all of us, I choose all of you. I give you a choice. And you have a way also to be a chosen person. So I just wanted to give you a big shout out. This has been a great two weeks and yes, I'm, I'm always, thrilled to hear all these different views from the callers and yes even old jeff and williams and whatnot so anyway <laughs> you guys have a great day <laughs> thank you
0: sir Pre- appreciate that you know the thing the most interesting thing josh said to me yesterday and and and, and I, mean, I can tell he's very curious about this and he and then josh has made no bones about it he wants to host a radio show one day and and i want him to be, you know to, i mean i want this to be some of his um some of where he cuts his teeth and and understands the craft i mean he, i don't i'm not sure i need to be the example, you know, I don't know that I need to be the setting example for Josh to pursue a formal career in, uh, Josh in radio. Josh needs to work on his
2: accent if well, he's I mean, trying I, to-
0: I do this in about as informal <laughs> way. Josh, you know this. I mean, I backed into this job. I didn't train to be a radio. It's pretty obvious I didn't train uh, to be a radio show host. But the one thing Josh said yesterday uh, that I find very interesting and curious, and I want him to expound upon this a bit this morning as soon as he gets off the phone with another with another caller, uh, if that's Tyler, tell him we don't want anybody anybody <laughs> being critical of our worldview and our opinion. i um, here, but but yesterday Josh said, um, and we have this disagreement. I mean, Josh and I, well, just a degree. We have this differing of opinions, and Josh said something yesterday. Josh said, "Look, dude, you are very comfortable in your opinion. I've got no question about that. I understand." I mean, he didn't say this, but he inferred, you're older than I am. You've been around the block more. You've seen the sunrise and and set more than I have. I know that you're comfortable in where you've landed. I'm trying to get equally as comfortable in where I land. Is that fair, Josh? I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you led me to believe. You're not confronting my opinion. I mean, you 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 do have a different opinion, but Josh led me to believe yesterday. Dude, I'm not saying... That, that, that I don't think you've landed in a sound and philosophical place. I've landed in a little bit different place, and I kind of sort of want to be as comfortable in where I've landed as you appear to be in, a, in where you landed. And, Josh, th- the one advice I've given over the air, have strong opinions, but be willing to question and skeptical of those strong opinions. The one thing I learned in politics, and I, and I touched on this yesterday, that there's a, you don't want to be known as a flip-flopper. I mean, you don't want to be known as the guy that says one thing one day and something the next. Well, you don't. I mean, you don't want to change your mind like the wind changes directions, but you got to be smart enough to change your mind if fact patterns convince you there's an alternative reason this happened or that happened or this didn't happen or that didn't happen. And I think very often we put ourselves in such a small box. When Josh started posting things, everybody that's ever done what Josh does, whether it was Alec, whether it was Cato, whether it was Josh, I'd always say that they would say, did you say 11,747? Mm-hmm. And I said, no, roughly 12,000. Because there's some media report out there that'll disagree with that number. And then you're, you know, you didn't give yourself enough wiggle room. And I just think being suspicious of your own opinions always gives you reasonable wiggle room. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Is that a fair analysis of what you said yesterday josh
1: yeah completely and i should mention i you know we've talked about this for a number of weeks now um i did used to be in the same boat as you i you know i grew up in a traditional christian home and the opinion of supporting israel and that 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 the modern state of israel is god's chosen people was my opinion and the more i got into christian apologetics the more i began to question that interpretation of scripture, but like you were just saying, I said yesterday, I don't know for sure. I could I could be wrong in the way I was before is the correct interpretation. I just am not as convinced of that uh, as I was before, but that doesn't mean I've won 80, where I'm like, oh, I'm sure that the Jews are not God's chosen people to this day. You've
0: led me to believe that in the humanistic fashion, take the supernatural out of the equation for just a second you've led me to believe and i've read some polling where younger americans believe that israel overplays their hand on american support how how dare you not support our military do you not know we're kind of an outpost for western culture and, and we kind of keep this part of the world at least somewhat uh you know supervised and i'm talking about the strait of hormuz the free flow of oil and and commerce and you know the um the reciprocal relationship we have uh, with the military-industrial complex in Israel, um, you've led me to believe that you think Israel takes our financial aid for granted. Is that fair?
1: I I think so, and I think with everything going on in the world right now, I've seen from like Mark Levin and and Ben Shapiro, it seems like a you know a little bit of entitlement to to American support that it's just a guarantee, which I mean, it is. It has like, been
0: for a long, long, long. Long, long time. Take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. We had phone trouble for a couple of minutes. We think we've rectified that problem. Had a reset of modem. I mean, I ran back. Rev, I, was, <laughs> I ran back there and reset the modem. Yeah, I think I've that. got everything up and running. <laughs> up and running <laughs> Good I job. Took the heel of my boot and kicked the back of that machine. <laughs> and the blue light came back on and then turned red and yellow and back red again. So I think we're good to go as it relates to the, uh, to the phone's working. 843 661 0937. And I've been very intentional in involving Josh in this story because I do respect the fact that younger people see the world fundamentally different uh, than we do. And the Republican Party has historically tried to convince younger people to stop believing what you believe. Get on board with this train. And, and I just think that's been a big turnoff. I mean, the Republican Party for a long, 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 long time has been my way or the highway. Here's the way the world works, son. And if you want to be one of us, you better sit down here and listen to me tell you the way the world works. And not embracing these young people, I'm not saying forsaking your values or giving in, uh, you know, to devilment and and things that are against the grain. But but we got to be respectful that generations see the world differently than previous generations. My father wasn't more crazy about a flock of seagulls or Queen. <laughs> But I don't think he thought I was the most evil creation in the history of mankind because I did listen to a flock of seagulls and queen and likewise in another generation. And I just think we've got to give these young people a reason to be interested in conservatism, the Republican Party, uh, America first, whatever, wherever we go from here. We can't do it without future generations being a part of it. Politics is math. And if you start losing all the 18- to 24-year-olds or the 24- to 32-year-olds, you become a very irrelevant political party. party, And it doesn't matter how loud you scream when there are fewer and fewer and fewer and fewer fewer of you. So I've tried to respect, not embrace because we have a difference here, but I've tried to give Josh's opinion the most respect I know how to give it so he does feel like, okay, these guys are listening. Maybe, maybe I've not changed their mind. They've not changed mine, but they're letting me in the room. They're allowing me to speak my peace. And at the end of the day, that's what political parties should do. Embrace people from outside, bring them inside, and let's, let's have these internal debates. I mean, I know when you are a, being a member of a caucus is different. I mean, that's different than being a member of a political party. But, but Reagan preached the big tent. Uh, I mean, if you're a friend of mine, 80 percent of the time, you're, you're my friend. It's a little bit like the Jews and Christians. We disagree on Jesus, but, but we have a very very similar worldview. Let's go to the phone, Breeze. You are on. Good morning.
5: I, th- I think that's the most important part. I mean, yeah. I mean, this whole thing about chosen people stuff. So, well, yeah, in the Old Testament, but I think now, <clears throat> even I think, I think the Jewish religion may still believe that they are the sole chosen people by God. By their religion, but as Christians, we do not believe that anymore. But anyway, that's not really why I called. I don't think that the I don't think that the war that's going on now has as much to do with God as, as it does to do with power and money and influence and all the other things that go along with every war. I think they may use God a lot of, just like the Crusades. They may use God or they may use this to get the the poor bloke that's 19 years old to go get himself killed. But at the end of the day, you know, they'll give you all these ideals while you're going to war. But I promise you, at the end of the day, it's about somebody getting more powerful and somebody getting richer or somebody getting more influence or something like that. Very rarely is a war really about honor and integrity and doing what's right and Christian and blah, blah, blah. But I'll tell you what, you know, you want to go ahead and change segue. I would like to give everybody a reminder of what's happened to us in our life, just in the past 20 years. We've had the entire banking community and all of the people in charge of finance screw us through the wall, and they're going to walk away coming out of a smelling like roses. All of them got roses, got, all of them got raises, all of them came out fine. Nobody went to jail, and we bailed them out. Remember that? We bailed them all out. Why aren't we bad? I'll be dying to I Then they spent all of this money that they knew was going to cause inflation. They kept spending money, spending money, putting us in wars, putting us in war, getting our people going beat the crap and back and everything else. Why aren't we bad? And then you turn back around, and then you see what that scam that they pulled on us with COVID. Democrats and Republicans. I want everybody to remember what the hospitals did to them. I want everybody to remember what our governor, our Republican, and our Democrat politicians did to them, our mayors. I want everybody to remember almost losing their businesses because of these politicians and these global leaders. Everything that has happened to us in the past 20 years,
0: Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate that. 843 The reason I believe the events in Israel escalated to the point of a full-blown war between Gaza and, and Israel, or Moss and, and Israel, is the the progress that appeared to be made between Saudi Arabia and, and Israel. I mean, if there genuinely could be, if there are enough moderate and, and peaceful Muslims that, that will allow the Jews to exist and live in peace and harmony, it was Saudi Arabia. I mean, Saudi Arabia appeared to be the most willing to go down that road and create or be a part of, you know, less violence, less conflict, less killing, less less you know, um, less religious, religious-based violence. And once Saudi Arabia and Israel appear to be making uh, headway, in, in the weirdest way, in the weirdest way imaginable, you could blame Brett Baer. Remember, Brett Baer went to Saudi Arabia and said, basically, and Baer's, I think, as straight a shooter as there is in the media. And Baer said to the royal prince, uh, is it true that you're genuinely interested in, in, in harmony and peace with Israel, the Jewish people? And, and he basically implied, I mean, he, he didn't say this, but he's saying this, we like driving Mercedes. I mean we, we like peaceful living. We we like we like I mean that men like women and women like you see where I'm headed? I mean they, we we we're not westerners but we we're, we're not up for all this killing and barbaric activity and whatnot and Iran loses its prominence. I mean if if Saudi Arabia agrees to live and let live with Israel and and, and, and makes a deal for peace and harmony now once again it's not going to be a you know a, a PowerPoint 30 minutes of the Saturday morning at a hotel. I mean, it gets real complicated, but it looked to me like Israel and Saudi Arabia were making progress on this kind of. A, I mean, it would be a modified two-state solution. Can the Muslims and Jews live in peace and harmony without you know ten years from now killing one another? Ten years from now killing one another. Ten another ten years. Some some chaotic event happens and it leads to the sorts of things genocide that we saw um, October sixth and seventh. But but once Iran Began, be, became suspicious of what Saudi Arabia and Israel were to do, I mean, they throw another bomb. I mean, let, let's create more conflict. Let's kill more Jews. Let's, uh, let's show Saudi Arabia that peace and harmony is not realistic in this part of the world because the infidels exist. The Jewish state is real. The Jews are alive. And part of our religion or our interpretation, I'm talking about Islamic jihadists here, is to banish Jews from the planet Earth, and there not be a Jewish state. And, and I think Saudi Arabia kind of going down the road of being willing to accept uh, Israel as the Jewish state and the Jews living in some, peace, some degree of peace and harmony with other non-Jews, in this case, would be the majority of Arab nations. And I think that provoked Iran to do what Iran does, and that is to create, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, I mean, they're a safe haven for terrorism. They're a state sponsor for terrorism. I mean, I have no idea how many people in the government of Iran are Islamic jihadists, but I do know that they're heavily financing a lot of the Islamic jihadists. 843-661-0937. I I do want to take Breeze's lead and go with it here in a second. The Fed uh, said some things yesterday that if you read between the lines should be extremely, extremely alarming and concerning. Take a break. Back in a few. Reggie's talking about the economy and finance and uh, the market and interest rates. Breeze was talking a second ago about COVID and the world melted down in 2007, 2008. I mean it's a very it's a very unstable time in the American economy. I mean I know the last 2 weeks we paid almost exclusive attention to Israel, Hamas, Gaza, the West Bank, uh, Iran, that part of the world. The 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 biblical implications you know, the Jews being God's chosen people. I mean, we've covered that about as well as I know how to cover it. Let's come back domestically and talk for a second about the, uh, the dirty wind blowing, as I like to say. Um, and Rev was reading me some, um, I mean, Rev's mom passed away and she had a home and they're trying to sell the home. I don't think he minds me saying this mm-hmm. and, and, uh, you needed to sell that home a year ago instead of, um, instead of today. So, the biggest issue facing the average American today, I mean, uh, we're talking about MMA and Bud Light, but uh, I mean, it's easy for a social media influencer to post things negative about Bud Light and to try to discourage people from going back and buying that product. How many, how many five-star liberals do you believe drive beer trucks or bartenders at your local watering hole or restaurant? I mean, you got to remember the collateral damage, and that's what I've always be de- tried to be careful about. I understand the media story. I mean, I do. You know, Bud Light made a terrible, terrible, terrible decision. They have paid a tremendous price in the marketplace. But Bud Light will be okay. I mean, InBev will figure it out. I mean, they, they'll launch a new brand. The, the The people that we can't forget are the truck drivers and the route workers and the people putting beer in a can. I mean, they're, they're us. They're They're one of us. The guy in the corner office at InBev is not one of us. But he's gonna get his golden parachute anyway. now uh, the the lady, I think she was a Cornell graduate, she's an Ivy Leaguer, that they hired to market the brand that she considered a bit fratty. I mean, she lost her job, I think. But 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 it's e- it's the economy, it's economics. I mean it's um it's Bud Light made a bad decision, now they're trying to make a good decision by creating a partnership or collaboration with the UFC and MMA uh, because they know the majority of people who drink Bud Light are dudes and they want to ingratiate themselves to dudes. They want the dudes to come back and drink their beer. And I've offered up, uh, you know, my my summary of the whole thing, they couldn't have made a worse decision, but they made a lousy, lousy decision. The biggest problem I have is the CEO not admitting how lousy a decision they made. But CEOs kind of do that now. I mean, they're politically correct. They got to keep BlackRock happy and Vanguard happy and you know Goldman happy because that's where the capital comes uh, from. And the, you know the diversity, inclu- or diversity, equity, and inclusion or inclusiveness, whatever. I mean, all these. I, I lose track of the um the acronyms any longer. But it's um, but I'm not. I mean, I, I've just never been one to throw a brand at the curb forever. I'm just not. Um, because when I look at the Bud Light can. I don't think about the guy in the corner office. I think about the truck driver, and I think about the, 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 the route worker, the guy running the convenience store, needs to sell beer to keep food on his table. It doesn't mean that, I, that I, you know, so, so you're, 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 you're condoning what Bud Light did? No, I think they made a stupid decision, an unbelievably dumb decision, and the board probably should have <laughs> needed to take some action on the CEO because the buck stops with him at the end of the day. But I think Bud Light trying to get back in bed, with a testosterone-riddled sport like USC, is absolutely appropriate. And it, are they going to pay a premium? I mean, if they didn't goof up, Dana White probably did not have to play, you know, uh, MBEB at $50 million. But he knew where they were, and he knew, to, knew that they needed rehabilitation. And the price to rehab is more expensive when, when you're in bad shape. So if Bud Light were still the biggest brand in the world, that there's kind of a mutual benefit. Bud Light's no longer the biggest brand in the world. And Dana White said, okay, I mean, do you want to be rehabbed? We'll help rehab, and it's good for our sport to be associated with a big major domestic beer company, but the price tag is going to be expensive, and I'm not telling my fighters what they can and cannot say. Let's go back to the economy. Um, there was a recent lawsuit regarding realtors. Uh, the Realtors Association, the National Association of Realtors, lost a huge lawsuit Um, I don't want to say collusion to price-fixing, but that's what they were accused of. Uh, the agent represented the buyer and seller. I mean, there, there's some conflict there. Uh, how, do you, how do you look after both interests? I mean, the buyer wants to buy it as cheap as he can. The seller wants to sell it as high as he can. How do you, nega- uh, how do you navigate that? Um, I equate it, and the Wall Street Journal equates it, to financial deregulation. You, you're kind of breaking up. I mean, the, the Wall Street Journal is very critical of realtors. For whatever reason, I don't have any idea, but the Wall Street Journal and its editorial board are highly critical of realtors. In fact, they called earlier this week. They called the lawsuit the breaking up of the real estate cartel. Now that that's mm. provocative and that's hyperbole, but it is what it is. But the um the courts decided that I mean it, it's 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 basic. They're arguing that the realtors have monopolized the access you have to MLS and having to pay uh, a fixed rate and the the agent being able to represent the seller and, and the buyer. Now, I don't buy that because I've sold property in my life and I've always negotiated on the commission. I mean, I've always negotiated a, a more favorable rate. It's harder when things are good. It's easier when things are not so good. Um, and, and I'm reading CNBC yesterday because I, I, I knew the Wall Street Journal had kind of a negative disposition toward realtors and the reason I'm paying attention is as the housing market goes, so goes the economy. I mean, That's always a leading indicator. Where are we in relation to housing? And, and I think we're headed to some really, really, really complicated and difficult times. Now, now the realtors will tell you everything's okay because that's their job. But I mean, they're supposed to say everything is okay. They're in the business of selling homes. And it's been pretty easy to sell homes lately. There's not been a big demand, and, or excuse me, a big supply. There's been a hot demand. There's been a, an increase in liquidity. So everybody's got a little more money than they normally have. And interest rates were not historically low. I mean, they were unprecedented low for an extended period of time. And what does that do? I mean, when you print money, macroeconomic stimulus leads to inflation. Inflation combined with lower interest rates leads to bubbles. It's inevitable. There's no way around it. You don't need to go to Harvard or Yale or Stanford or Duke business school to know that that is the case. Macroeconomic stimulus leads to inflation. Inflation combined or stimulus combined with lower interest rates is going to create a bubble. And I'm arguing, Breeze was talking about when the world blew up in 08. And, And I believe that we're heading to an economic conundrum much larger than what we saw in 2007, 8, 9, when the world did blow up. And I think the fatal mistake we made was what I sat behind this microphone about two and a half years ago and admitted I had no idea. Uh, When we passed the last tranche of stimulus in the American Rescue Plan, we had CARES 1, CARES 2, uh, the the American Rescue Plan, the Inflation Reduction Act, but the American Rescue Plan was the one that left me scratching my head because I can remember how much of that money went to green energy. I mean, it was a tremendous Inflation Reduction Act, but the American Rescue Plan included a lot of incentives for green energy. And I remember thinking to myself, that has nothing to do with COVID. We're just printing money. I mean, I, we, we've always just printed money, but we've never done it to that degree. I mean, the M2 money supply, we touched on that. The M2 money supply prior to COVID was $15 trillion. When when COVID hit, it went to $22 trillion. And it's going to create an economic conundrum, I'm predicting, unlike any we've seen since the Great Depression. I didn't see the Great Depression. I've read about the Great Depression. It freaks me out to think about the Great Depression. 2007, eight, nine scared me to death. I was in business, uh, in, in a family business, and I watched the economy just change in a way that I never imagined it could. I think this is going to be worse. Now, now, now no. when? Well, I mean, I said two years ago, Rev, because you asked me. So, when does all this happen? I don't know. I don't have any idea. But, but it's beginning to show signs of significant economic weakness, and it's beginning where you would expect it to begin in the housing sector. Take a break. Back in a few. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. It's Thursday morning. Get my way moving around too much over here. Great television, senior national editor, White House correspondent, John Decker is with us. John, good morning. How are you?
6: Hey, I'm doing great, Ken. Hope you're doing well. Having a great week. Thanks for having me on today, as always.
0: Absolutely. I want to touch on something to begin with that I know you'll have some information on. The Senate passed uh, a bill sent to the House that included Ukrainian and Israeli funding. New Speaker Johnson says, my uh, my caucus won't go for that, and he's asking for a standalone bill to fund aid to Israel. That's probably a no-go in the Senate. Where are we in that impasse?
6: Well, that's right. You know, similar reaction coming from both the Senate and the White House to that House-authored bill that will likely pass today uh, along party lines. And that's a bill that, as you mentioned, Ken, does not contain any funding for Ukraine, Uh, There's strong bipartisan support in terms of funding for Ukraine in the Senate. Uh, You know, one of the leading advocates for that is the leader for Republicans in the Senate, Mitch McConnell. And the White House putting out a statement earlier in the week that if that bill somehow, I don't think it will, but somehow gets to the president's desk, he will veto it. Uh, The president says that funding for Ukraine, funding for Israel, funding for border security, they're all connected. It all goes to America's national security.
0: So, how how do we address that, John? I mean, if there's, is it an imp- Is it is it a non-negotiable issue in the Senate and the House, or well,
6: do we you know, know the look, answer I, to that
0: yet? Is that
7: that's probably unfair to you?
6: Yeah, we don't know the answer to that just yet. Uh, you know, sometimes uh, we've seen this a lot. Uh, there's, uh, I think, this denial uh, that exists in both the Senate and the House that there is not. Uh, you know, a unified government. There's not, you know, a unified approach to dealing with so many issues. In fact, it's divided government. Republicans control the House, Democrats control the Senate. And so on issue after issue, if you want to get something done, you do need uh, to meet halfway. You do need to have compromise. And we don't see that uh, right now. You know, I think that, you know, for the new speaker, I get it, you know, in terms of what uh, I think a vocal minority of his party are saying as it relates to Ukraine. Uh, but, you know, the, the fact of the matter is is that, you know, you, you have to figure out ways to mollify, um, you know, I, I guess you could say both sides and, and pass something that can, can get done. And, and there's an immediate need for both of uh, those eight packages to both Israel and Ukraine.
0: So, John, why wouldn't you just vote on a Ukraine standalone bill and an Israel standalone bill?
6: I don't know. I think that's the way that the White House has sent that up. You know, I, I think that you could argue— Uh, you know, if you're a cynic, Ken, it's a poison pill, so to speak, you know, by including all of this together, including funding for border security, uh, you know, and it seems to me that when when the White House sent that package to the Hill, to the Hill, $105 billion package, for the most part, you saw agreement in terms of what the concept of what the White House wanted to do coming from both the leader for Republicans in the Senate and the leader for Democrats in the Senate, uh, Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell. But, you know, devil's in the details, the clock's ticking. And, you know, I think that, you know, at, at some point, you know, both sides have to realize what can get done, what can get done in the immediate um, approach to these two issues, which are big issues. They're big issues, you know, as it relates to, to Russia, they're big issues as it relates to the terrorist group Hamas and, you know, trying to defeat, and destroy them which is israel israel wants to do and as it relates to, to putin uh making certain that he doesn't take his war beyond ukraine uh into other parts of eastern europe
0: we're having a gop debate next week uh the problem with yeah. the debate is the front runner's not there he's never there he's yeah. always he's either in a courtroom somewhere uh you know not obeying by some gag order or he's out campaigning um we we say time and time again that this is the moment someone will break through. And there has been bright spots. Nikki Haley, I think, has acquitted herself well. But, but it seems that nothing that happens in these debates impacts the, the, the lead that Donald Trump has in the primary. What say you?
6: I agree with you. With one exception, you just hit on it, and that's Nikki Haley. I think she's really benefited by these first two debates. Uh, she's seen her poll numbers go up uh, significantly. She's broken away uh, from uh, a lot of the others. Uh, she's not still she's not yet in a position, however, where she's going against uh, Donald Trump you know head to head. I think that you know these debates have been beneficial to her and the fact that Donald Trump's not on that stage, you know it, it allows this, this, uh, the spotlight to shine on her, so to speak. But uh, if you look at poll after poll, this is the big butt Ken, you look at poll after poll, Donald Trump, is far and away the front runner. You know, he's leading by 30 points no matter what poll you look at, whether it's a national poll or state poll as it relates to the Republican nomination. So Nikki Haley has some work to do, still about two and a half months until the Iowa caucus. And, you know, I think you got to just go out there still campaigning in these early states, Iowa and New Hampshire.
0: John, President Biden will go to Maine tomorrow. What's the purpose of that visit?
6: Well, the purpose is, you know, another mass shooting, uh, unfortunately, in America. And the, the president, you know, you know, we've seen this time and time again, regardless of who the president is. They uh, are there to comfort, uh, comfort uh, families who lost loved ones, survivors, meet with first responders. All of that is a part of this trip to Lewiston, Maine. I, I've unfortunately been on these trips before uh, with uh, other presidents, with Barack Obama in South Carolina. Uh, in Charleston, I've been with Donald Trump, you know, to that synagogue in Pittsburgh, and they're sad trips. They are just tough, uh, and that's what the president will be doing tomorrow, uh, traveling there along along with the first lady.
0: John, thank you for your time. Have a great day, sir, and a great weekend.
6: Hey, you too. Thanks so much, Ken. Really appreciate it. Bye-bye.
0: Thank you, right, John Decker, who is great television senior national editor, White House correspondent. Eight four three six six one. 0937 is our number. Let's go to Senator, excuse me, let's go to House Speaker um Johnson. I think this is kind of an interesting perspective. Um and I mean John gives you kind of a perspective inside the Beltway. I mean there's a lingo, that there's a a sensibility there that is not um as it's not as overwhelming outside of the Beltway as it is um inside. You hear in John's voice kind of an inflection of you know, no, nobody's doing anything to try and create cohesion within our government. That's exactly what we wanted. We wanted someone to not go along and get along. We wanted someone to be a force of resistance. That's, that's the misnomer. And that's, once again, we talked about Dabo and Tyler a little bit. And the national media interprets that give and take. You know, that rant by a caller and then rant by a coach. As one thing, and I think Clemson Nation interpreted it fundamentally different. There's almost this disconnect. And I wouldn't expect the national media to understand, you know, the Clemson faithful and Dabo Sweeney. But, but I would expect them to be interested in that dynamic. Um, why, why does Donald Trump say outlandish things and increase in the poll? because he reflects the judgments and opinions of everyday Americans. It's very unpopular what he says inside the Beltway. I mean, the Uniparty does not like at all anything Trump says, and it seems to me that Mike Johnson is more of an America first speaker than we've ever had. It's, it's a little bit, I, had a, I woke up to a text this morning from a Democrat House member of mine, a good friend of mine, and um, he was talking about the concern he has about, you know, the lack of cohesion, the lack of working together, the lack of, of governing accomplishing. I think governments, absolutely, I am more optimistic today about the state of our government. I mean, I'm not anywhere near as optimistic about our country because of our debt, and I, we'll get to that in just a couple of seconds, but but the country seems to be, the, the government seems to have responded in some way, shape, or form, or at some degree, incrementally, for sure, to what we want them to do. Tommy Turbyville. I mean, the, the you know, the liberals hate Turbyville. The Uniparty hates Turbyville. Inside the Beltway hates Turbyville. I think the majority of American Republican voters like what Tommy Turbyville is doing. But he's holding up progress. Well, I mean, is progress. Taxpayers paying for travel expenses for a member of the military to travel to another state and have an abortion. I mean, is that progress? I mean, is American safety and security at risk because a member of the military can't drive a state away and the taxpayer pay for that travel so they can end a pregnancy? I think Turbyville's doing exactly what the rank-and-file GOP voter won't done. I think Johnson's doing exactly what the, jd Vance, Donald Trump. I mean, we're, we're gaining a little traction. I mean, there's power in numbers. We're still the minority in the party. And I'm talking about as elected officials. We're not the minority as voters, but, but the, the the elected officials are beginning to reflect the sentiment of the voters. Every day it gets a little better. Take a break. Back in a few. eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Couple of announcements. Paul Ryan announced yesterday that if Trump's the nominee, uh, I think the convention's in Ohio. He ain't going. So I know we're heartbroken no. that our um, America First former speaker Paul Ryan <laughs> and former VP candidate with the plastic man Mitt Romney is not going to be at um at the Who cares? at the Republican National Convention. And secondly, um, I mean this stands to reason. You got you got the last 2 weeks have consisted of images of Jewish women being burned in beds, Jewish children being beheaded, um, genocide. I mean uh, stop with 9/11. I mean, this is much closer to the Holocaust than it is um, 9-11, Jewish children being beheaded by fanatical Islamist, Islamic jihadists that refer to themselves as Hamas, and then you've got Hezbollah at the West Bank, and Kamala Harris announces the country's first national strategy to counter Islamophobia, not anti-Semitism, uh, When she says to combat people. a surge of hate in America. I'm not a Jew. We had a Jewish lady call in this morning and talk about the God of Abraham being the first Jew. I I, I am a a former politician. And there are, what, 8 million Jews in America ish, somewhere thereabout. 8 million Jews live in America. How many were born in America? How many came? I don't have any idea. But there's about 8 million Jews in America. 75% vote Democrat. Stop. Stop. That makes no sense. You have a right to vote for who you choose to vote for. But the Democrat Party, the modern political left in America today, really the, the intellectual left that shapes the debate on that side of the political equation or anti-Israel, anti-Semitic. I mean, we've debated, and nobody's answered this. What is the difference in anti-Israel and anti-Semitism? I don't know. I don't have any idea. But something feels a little bit differently. Josh, I'll ask you that. Does does anti-Israel feel a little bit different than anti-Semitism? I don't know what the difference is, but it feels fundamentally different.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, obviously, like, to be anti-Semitic, to be anti-Jew is like, it's racist by definition. To be anti-Israel, you can be critical of a nation. You can be, I mean, you can be critical of Germany, and they're all Germans. Fair know? enough.
0: Fair enough. I mean, I think that's well said. And once again, I don't know how to, I mean, the, the official definition, you know, what is the difference on this side? You got anti-Semitism on that side, you got anti-Israel. I don't know what the difference is, but it feels different to me. Um, and, and, I, and I've asked this, and I've tried to read and better understand it. Um, but once again, it stands to reason that when the issue is a sovereign nation being invaded, and I understand there's a debate about borders and boundaries and land and who owned it before whom. I get all that. But there, there there's no way anybody can defend what Hamas did. I mean, I don't think you can defend everything Jews have ever done. You can't defend everything the Americans have ever done. You can't defend anything any group of people or ethnicity has ever done. Religion, uh, you know, ethnicity, um, sex, uh, whatever. I mean, we've all been a part of groups that— have stains, have black marks, have made grave errors in judgment, um, and you get lumped in. I mean, it's unfair, but you do kind of all get lumped in. Them damn Jews, those damn white people, those damn black people. I mean, they, we, we, we're we all guilty of that. But but the Democrats enjoyed the benefit of 75% of Jewish voters, and a week or two after Jewish children are beheaded, Kamala Harris announces the country's first National strategy to counter, not anti-Semitism, but Islamophobia to combat the surge of hate in America, and the Jews keep voting for the Democrats. I think it's a little bit like what we talk about with Josh, this this introduction of a new way of thinking. The Republicans have historically been lousy at that. Instead of allowing Josh to tell us what he thinks and believes, because he kind of wants to be a part of the party. He kind of agrees with us about 75% of the time. But that's not good enough for us. We need Josh to be with us every time. We need Josh to not express his own views and values, but rather conform to what we've decided is the path forward, the way forward. And maybe the Jews historically have voted for the Democrats because they have historically voted for the support of the downtrodden, civil rights legislation, um, uh, LBJ. I'm not talking about Kennedy. I mean, excuse me, Lincoln. I mean, Lincoln was a Republican and the Emancipation Proclamation was signed by a Republican uh, president, was endorsed by a Republican uh, president. But but I guess post-19, post-Second World War, the Democrats have carried the mantle of embracing, you know, minorities and the plight of minorities and the struggle of minorities. And, you know, diversity is a big part of this equation. And we got to have more blacks in the boardroom, more Hispanics in In corporate America, more women, more. I mean, and then I guess the Jews have felt despondent and downtrodden, and they saw that party more aligned with the philosophical nature of the way they see the world. But this ain't your granddaddy's Democrat Party. But this is a very radical, extremist, um, socialist party. And we kind of explored that yesterday a little bit and the day before. I've got a theory. It's nothing but a theory, but I stand by it. I believe the most prominent Western intellectual in the world today is Barack Obama. And I think Barack Obama is deeply racist and anti-Semitic. And I think he has shaped and molded this new mindset of the American intellectual political left. And I think when Kamala Harris or Kamala Harris says that instead of a, you know, a, uh, a national strategy to combat anti-Semitism, it's Islamophobia. That we're um, that we're going to confront and make sure this surge of hate in America does not lead to um, death and despair. Uh, you know, that's kind of a weird, a weird time and way to make that announcement. It's a little bit like we don't need the Jews voting for us anymore. I mean, there's got to be some political calculus in that. I mean, she's the vice president. Biden's the president. She knows she's the vice president. He kind of sort of thinks on some days he's the he's the president, but somebody in that office is giving strategic advice. Somebody in that office is a political operative. I'll assure you of that. All right, it's not one person. I mean, there are a handful of political operatives that go to work in the White House every day. And they're smart, they're competent, they're diligent, and they're Obama acolytes. Now, do they share that same anti Semitic person? I don't have any idea. I mean, it would be total speculation. If I said, who's running the political operation in the White House? There's this there's this mindset. Some of you think, well, the, the, you know, the, the politics in the White House, it's on the campaign trail. The White House is the most political building in the history of mankind. I mean, it's probably more political than the Capitol. I mean, I understand this, this wall of separation, this line of demarcation. You know, what happens on the campaign trail happens on the campaign trail. When Joe Biden or Donald Trump step into that Oval Office, they're conducting and transacting the people's business. You know, minus the, the political winds blowing one way or another. Eh, you know, I don't, I don't buy that for a second. When, when, when the president sits behind that resolute desk, somebody's in his ear about what the political calculus is regarding this decision or that decision or another. And I don't for the life of me understand unless they're banking on, you know, uh, more Muslims voting Democrat than Jews. M- maybe that's the calculus they made, maybe they've made an internal determination that we'd rather have the Muslims voting for us than the Jews voting for us because our political priorities are more aligned with the Muslims than they are mm. the Jews. It's kind of an anti-Judeo-Christian ethic agenda or platform. Take a break. Back in a few. 843 Got a question for Rev before we go to our guest. So Rev, when Tyler calls in and takes Dabo to task, and Dabo <laughs> is, has an epic rant mm-hmm. on Tyler from Spartanburg. How does HBC, uh, back in the day when Spurrier was here, how does Spurrier <laughs> handle um, Tyler? If Tyler were to call in and say, ah, right, man, you're making a bunch of money, and you're losing a bunch of games, and you know, ma- maybe if he gets that far, and then HBC says, oh, hey, uh, <laughs> that's it. Yeah. You're, you're exactly right. When, when Spurrier decided that Tyler was antagonistic, Spurry would he said, oh, Tyler, oh, Tyler, he oh, said, Tyler Spartberg. I mean, yeah. Yeah. And he'd say, yeah, thanks for the Clemson fans <laughs> for calling in today. <laughs> that bunch of the upstate. Yeah, he, he would not have let that drag on and on and on and on and on. Dabo's a little bit like a politician. I'm guilty of this. Trump is absolutely guilty of this. And Drew McKissick, I think, will confirm. Drew's the SCGOP chairman and co-chair of the National Party. He's with us. But there are some politicians that believe as long as they're talking, they're winning. And that's not always the case. Sometimes a period is to your advantage more so than a comma is. And I think Trump is the quintessential guy that believes as long as he's talking, <laughs> he's winning. There are times we've all
2: wished he'd yeah, you know, put, put a the period, period there, there not and, a comma. Yeah.
0: It's like when he finishes, we all go, yeah. And then he, and then he continues. <laughs> like, like, oh, crap. Like, oh. oh. <laughs> yeah. Well, what's
8: he about to say now? <laughs> Drew, is there something to that? Well, you know, I guess it, it, You know, I'll give the quintessential political answer here now. It depends. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, so let's look at it this way. So uh, sometimes you're, you're better off when you are dominating the microphone because you're preventing someone who from the other side from actually filling the space. Now, if the other person filling the space is making an idiot out of themselves, then by all means give them the microphone. Give them the TV camera. Don't get in the way. Let them dig their hole.
0: Uh, but, um, you know, so, but. Hey, did Uh-oh. we lose Drew? Yeah, oh, we, we no. lost Drew. 843-661-0937. We apologize for that. We've had some issues yeah, early with this morning. This and morning, we thought we had those rectified. Darn. Uh, yeah, we, I heard a clicking noise <laughs> as if it weren't just He's him drifting that. out of bounds, but rather out of bounds, out of area. Can you hear me now? Um, <laughs> it's kind of the. I'm seeing if this is Drew here or not. The beauty of live radio eight four three six six one things break oh nine three seven is that Drew calling back? Drew, <laughs> you there? I'm back. I'm okay. back. I don't know. I got a
8: weird error message in my ear. We're, we're uh, sorry. We're sorry uh,
0: about that. So continue. I'm sorry.
8: Yeah. So so again, you know, if if the other guy's digging a hole, let him dig the hole. But but sometimes you know when you've got good news out there, and people are going to soak up your good news. Don't get in the way of your own, your own good news by continuing to carry on. You know, like you said, sometimes the period is a good thing. Let people absorb what the good news is. Don't get in the way of it. Don't give them something else to chew on that they might not like as much as what's already out there. Uh, that, that's a good point to that. And, you know, <laughs> so let's look at it this way. There are people out there also who appreciate just what you said a minute ago. They appreciate the guy who won't let the idiot ramble, you know. So <laughs> the spurrier move sometimes by just shutting them down and moving on that pays off too. But Drew, is it fair to
0: say, because I mean, you know, I was in politics and now host a radio show, their birth, I mean, you don't want this to be the case. And the country's probably better off if it's not the case, but there is an entertainment value to politics. I mean, the the reason Trump is so intriguing is people find him entertaining, whether they agree with him or not.
8: And there's a big historical piece to that. particularly in Southern politics, and you know this, you go way back here in, in Southern culture. Southern culture, Southern politics, much more entertaining than politics out West, Midwest, and up North, and always has been. Uh, a big part of that is because in a lot of ways, you know, in the, in the post-Civil War days especially, and then in the early uh, 1900s, you know, politics was part entertainment, uh, how people occupied a lot of their time. And, and so we, we've got a history of that. Uh, and I think maybe that's a big reason why you see, uh, more successful politicians over the years coming out of the South and other parts of the country. Uh, but yeah, so there's definitely an aspect of that and social media has, has sort of, you know, amplified that. I think that's fair to say.
0: Drew, how important are the Virginia elections and what are you trying to make of that moving ahead to the midterms and eventual presidential election?
8: So, uh, Virginia, so what we're looking at is the legislature. So Republicans control the House and the governor's office, Democrats control the Senate. Uh, I believe there's three seats that we need to flip in the state Senate in order to carry it. And it's going to be tight. It's a tight race. Uh, and, uh, you know, the RNC is uh, uh, invested. Uh, the Governor Yunkin's campaign has invested big money as well. Uh, a lot of other conservative political groups working big time in Virginia. Uh, And, you know, I mean, there are parts of Virginia because of the growth of Washington, D.C., let's just be frank about it. You know, they've imported a lot of liberals here to work for the government who live over in northern Virginia. That's made things more difficult in Virginia. Uh, And so, you know, but it's not only just Virginia in this cycle. Remember, we've got the Kentucky governor's race going on right now, Mississippi governor's race. Uh, You got uh, races going on in New Jersey. These midterm races are a way for us to test drive, if you will, some of the uh, early voting uh, you know systems now that we're putting in place to promote early voting uh, for next year, so we can see how these are working. I think we talked about this on your show before the Bank Your Vote program, uh, where you know depending on what state you live in, when you come in and you sign up for that program, BankYourVote.com, or however any political race in any given state or state party has white labeled that program with a different URL or you know uh, uh, user interface, but it all comes into one system. Where depending on what state you're in. When you sign up, this lets you know where and when and how to vote early, but it also lets the campaigns working in those states know who has pledged to vote early so we can pester them and make sure that they get out and vote. Uh, Because unless we expand the electorate in some of these battleground states next year, we're not going to win. We have to expand the electorate, uh, and early voting is going to be a big part of that. Is this an
0: indication of whether Virginia's in play or not? I mean, to me – I'm not in your shoes. I don't, I'm not privileged to all the data you have. I think it's a, rich, a reach to believe that Virginia's in play. Is there a data point that you're looking for that encourages you to believe that Virginia may be in play in the presidential cycle?
8: Turnout's a big thing. I mean, we look at turnout, you know, versus the last presidential cycle, their governor's race in 21, and then what we're seeing now. Uh, and registrations and how those are trended or another piece of data that you look at. And you know, then the issues that come into play uh, and, and that's going to tell a lot uh, and what our ticket looks like uh, next year. And who's on the ticket? I mean, let's just say for sake of argument. What if Governor Yunkin was the running mate for whoever was at the top of the ticket? Well, that changes the dynamic definitely in Virginia. I think you would agree. Uh, so a lot of things that are going to go into that, but Virginia you know, we haven't carried, I think it's the last four presidential cycles, but that's 13 electoral votes. If Virginia was truly back in play, that would change, uh, calculus nationally. Definitely.
0: No question about it. Mike Pence out, former vice president, never could gain any Mm -hmm. traction. Uh, I mean, that's Mm -hmm. not a big surprise, but, but I mean, and, and I, and I'll say this, I mean, you can't, but I will. He said it was not his time, but, but, He just was not the kind of candidate that most Republican voters are looking for. Is that a fair analysis?
8: Well, you know, at the end of the day, the polls uh, have spoken. So I think that's, I think, and he's come to that conclusion. Uh, You know, we've got a lot of good candidates offering themselves for office, but everybody doesn't always catch the moment or match the moment, if you will, and what the market is looking for, the political market, Uh, you know, but, uh, obviously, a good conservative guy with a lot to offer. He's made a big contribution to the country. Uh, yesterday, I'll take it back. Yesterday, uh, Tuesday at 5 p.m. was our filing deadline for the South Carolina presidential primary. Uh, so we had 10 candidates that filed, believe it or not, uh, which uh, is fantastic because we've got that fifty thousand dollar filing fee. So I'm all about raising money to beat Democrats. Um, you know, but there's several of them that you probably haven't heard of, but are trying to get their name out there. But you know, sometimes people run because they want to influence the conversation. They want to bring issues up within the, the nomination battle and, and highlight certain specific issues. Sometimes they run because, you know, they want to raise their visibility and maybe they become a running mayor. Maybe they get a cabinet post or something like that. A lot of different reasons that people run. Um, but, you know, look, as, as, a, as a state party chairman and RNC co-chairman, I'm always thankful for people who are willing to run. Because, quite frankly, they put themselves and their families just through hell. Uh, and uh, I, I appreciate that and their willingness to do that.
0: Uh, last couple of subjects here I want to touch on. Um, Elon Musk sat down with Joe Rogan on his podcast and talked about how much censorship. I mean, he basically said Twitter was an extension of the government. They suppressed or censored about 10 times the number of Republican-oriented posts that they did. Democrat, I think his words were conservative and liberal. But but one thing he said more interesting to me, and I want to get your take on this, he talked about George Soros and, and arbitrage, and he basically said Soros has decided the investments he makes in local government return a far bigger bang for the buck than the investments he make at the federal level. What does the RNC do to try and cultivate, support, create a bench that, that we have good Republicans on city and county council, good Republican mayors? Uh, you know where I'm headed. I mean— is that yes, a focus yes. of the of the RNC or the state party, and, and and what sort of operation does that entail?
8: That's more of a focus of state parties, state and local state parties working with local parties, because, you know, the folks in the local party, you know, the folks that run the Florence County Republican Party know more about who would be a good potential person for a school board race or a city council seat or a county council seat than I could as a state chairman sitting in Columbia or an RNC chairman sitting in D.C. wouldn't know. Uh, but what we do at the state level and the national level is encouraging development of the bench. So when it comes to those local races, uh, because yeah, you know, I've, I've seen cases, and I'm sure you've probably seen it too, where let's say a uh, a really hot sheriff's race will outpoll a presidential race or a governor's race. Uh, you know, there are a lot of local races. Those those races draw people to the polls too. Let's don't forget about those uh, and. Those local races also have a big impact on straight ticket voting in South Carolina. So, you know, here, maybe about three weeks ago, four weeks ago, uh, the coroner in Darlington County switched parties. He'd been you know Democrat for, I think, three terms, switching to the Republican Party. Conservative fellow, folks in the party there like him, wanted him on board. He switched over. Well, now, what does that do? That makes it more likely that straight ticket voting is going to go up a little bit more, even more than it has in the past, in Darlington County. Uh, Because people won't have who like him won't have as much reason to split their ticket, that's going to then help other candidates further down the ballot uh, who don't have a lot of name recognition because they're going to get more straight ticket Republican support. So I have, since I've been chairman of the state party, I've spent a lot of time focusing on down ballot folks because they have personal relationships in the community, that increases the support for the local ticket, which increases the support. Uh, And the votes that those guys are going to get, who can't always raise the resources that they want to run a big campaign. But if they can get on the ticket, they get a lot of that support. Down ballot races matter a lot to that. And look, Soros is smart for leveraging his money. It is a leverage point because it takes less money to run a good competitive race at the local level on a percentage basis than it does at higher levels of politics. And most people ignore the lower levels of politics. Most of us are guilty of not knowing who's on our school board or on our city council. We know maybe who our president is or our governor is, and that dominates 99% of our news. Uh, But, hey, a lot of your tax dollars are spent at the local level. You know that, too.
0: Well explained. Last question, and I'm mad with you guys. I'm mad with you and Rona and whoever else made this decision. Why are we having a debate and allowing Lester Holt, Kristen Welker, and Hugh Hewitt to moderate? Help me with that.
7: All right.
8: So, as far as the debates themselves are concerned, you've got uh, let's see, let's figure it say ten of them, and you've got the different uh, broadcast outlets that are making their quite, quite frankly, their money available and their network available to help broadcast. So, we looked at them instead of in sixteen. Whenever the party rolled out a set of ten different debates and picked who was going to get to run each setup. The decision was made this time to do these one at a time to roll them out one at a time so it would give us a little bit better leverage over the network down the stretch because if they screw up one they're less likely to get a second one. Uh, so we that's one change that's been made. The second change has been made though this time is you've got a Hugh Hewitt sitting at the table, someone from the conservative ecosystem rather than just network moderators. That's new. and I'm hoping even at the next debate we will have even more. actually, uh, I, I think uh, well, I can't announce it right now, but th- there's you're going to have essentially two from the conservative ecosystem sitting at the table versus just one, I believe, at the next debate. That's ramping up. But the bottom line at the end of the day is it costs a heck of a lot of money to put them on. I think uh, in the neighborhood of about $3 million. Uh, so that's not cost to the party then. The networks, whichever network is chosen, is absorbing that cost. Uh, I'll tell you, I'm not the biggest fan of, uh, you know, some folks who end up sitting at that table as well. Uh, I don't make all those decisions, uh, and I'll just leave it there. Fair, fair enough. <laughs> I hear you loud and clear. <laughs> the,
0: the The unspoken resonates with me normally better than, than the spoken word. Thank you. Thank you, Drew. Appreciate your time. Have a great week. And yes, we sir. hope to talk again next week.
8: Take care. Thank
0: you. Uh, I, I just, it's unfortunate. I mean, it's unfortunate that Republicans have to, have debates moderated by folks who have publicly said, I mean, over and over and over again, they oppose the central ideas and prospects of the and, political and party. And they prove it over and over again when they do get in the chair in the debate. Yeah, I mean, they, I mean, they make themselves a part of the debate. They do. Yeah, it's one-sided. The, no, no, well, I mean, but they've told you up until then. Nobody should be surprised when Kirsten Welker or um, Lester Holt say something antagonistic toward the dem- the Republican candidate. The debate will basically be defend your extreme position on abortion. Now you defend your extreme position on abortion. That's not, uh, uh, clarify your extreme position on abortion. And it's just, I would rather see a, a fairer group of moderators. Take a break. Back in a few. 843 661 And I don't have any idea why I feel this. We're talking about the difference in Israel and Jew or anti-Israel, anti-Jewish. There's some things you just feel in your bones. I mean, there's no intellectual rationalization to be made. There's no—I mean, you didn't see the world change before your very eyes. You uh, didn't—you know, there's some—of course there are optical illusions, but there are other things that are obvious. I mean, it's obvious this has happened or that has happened. I can't express to you how confident I am— that certain pockets of American culture are beginning to realize this ain't working. I mean, this this is broken. I mean, it's broken in a bad and major way, and it may be my world. I mean, it may, I'm not a Northeast liberal. I'm not in a, an elite university. I circulate in a very normal kind of Joe Six Pack business guy kind of world, but I can't express to you how confident I am that something is happening amongst the the 330 million Americans, that whatever it is we've tried just ain't working. Uh, I'll give an example. We were told two years, three years, four years, five years ago that you're not going to believe how much better off we'll be if we stop burning coal and oil and burn gasoline and internal combustion engines. How many stories? I mean, the media's trying their best not to talk about this, but some of the legitimate media are covering, I mean, there's project after project after project shutting down. I mean, th- th- there is green energy project after green energy project after electric car project after electric car project just shuttering, just shutting down. I mean, taxpayer-subsidized projects ain't working. Uh, Ford, I don't know if you saw this or not, I a mean, $12 billion project, end, shut down, doesn't work, not going to work. And it, it's it's government. I mean, it's the government decided to try and force the economy to transition a generational uh, part in, in 10 years, in 15, 18 years. And, and I just think that people are now sensing. I, I don't know that people understand the Ford project shutting down, the wind project shutting down. Um, I mean, it's Solyndra every day. Remember, Solyndra was this crazy story. That's pretty bizarre, Reb. In the Obama administration, there was a green energy company that the government made an investment in, and everybody was taking it back. Now it's just every day. I mean, there's some green energy business that the taxpayers have invested in. Whether you wanted to or not, you made a significant investment in this energy. And I'm telling you, the electric vehicle may have already peaked. I mean, I hate really? to say that. I mean, because that's going to put some of uh, our, our our recent economic activity prospects in question. But it's it's pretty obvious to me as I read and try to better understand. Yeah, I mean, I could easily argue that EV peak has already happened. And and the brilliance, the genius of this is Elon Musk. I mean, Musk got so far ahead of everybody in technology and battery-related, um, you know, what to do with the battery and how to charge the battery and how long does the battery run and how much does the battery cost. I mean, he was so far ahead of everybody. When some of these companies make a little advance, he lowers the price of his cars to create a competitive advantage. And there's so many of these green energy projects. And the electric vehicle would be most near and dear to our hearts because we're thinking about, wow, I mean, I buy gas. You buy gas. I mean, I know we buy energy, but we don't feel like we have a lot of choices, right? I mean, we just don't feel like we have a lot of, a lot of choices. You're in this area. This company provides service to that area, and you kind of got to pay what they charge you. But in personal transportation, we feel a little bit liberated. I can decide whether I'm buying Uh, You know, a small car that's good on gas, a big truck that's not so good on gas. And all of a sudden, I'm going to have another option. This car that I plug into the wall, and it takes me from point A to point B. Well, all those things you've been told to prove it to not be true. They they don't go as far as you were told they were. They're not as easily operable as you were told they were. They're going to be much more expensive than you were told they were. Uh, You may or may not find a charging station as you were told you could. And, and I'm just, I'm, I'm, I think eventually we get to a place where a certain share of personal transportation is the EV. But Joe Biden said on the debate stage, by the year 2030, we will burn zero carbon. I mean, in other words, we will not have an internal combustion engine on the road in seven years. The absurdity of that. And we elected that guy to be our president. Let's go to the phone. Mike in Darlington. Good morning. You're on.
2: I
9: hate to say that, but I told you so years ago that this old green thing was just a scam. It was just a huge scam, and I cannot believe that uh, people went along with it for so long before the. It, I, I don't know before they hit the hit the wall, but uh, this is absolutely crazy, and this may uh, damage our our country more. Economically than anything else, this crazy thing we have done here, and I don't know why they did the thing. It's like it's like the mechanics and the junior engineers knew that that nuclear plant wasn't going to work up in uh, up in Fairfield, and uh, they knew it for years, and uh, that the the parts didn't match up. And they went ahead with it, just like uh, like it was gonna go. And and I guess we're pay, we're paying Dominion extra bills
0: right now, paying that off. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. Yeah, we're all spending a good bit of money to fix some of the things that were broken um, during the process. But I mean, it's it's more than that. I want to try to find these stories. I mean, it, I should archive this. I mean, it, here's what I'll do: beginning Monday, every day, and I'll be fair. I mean, obviously, I have a. An opinion and a word, but I'll be fair. I can go online every day and find a legitimate news story of a green energy project being shut or to put on hold. And the majority have been invested by you, the taxpayer. I mean, the overwhelming majority of these things are taxpayer subsidized. Um, I mean, you can argue that the oil industry is subsidized, okay? But it's been pretty reliable and dependable for a long time. I mean, I know you don't like buying gas, especially when gas is three dollars and some odd cents a gallon. I get that. I understand that. But but normally, when you pull up to a gas station or a convenience store and you put your card or your cash to the get to the uh, to the counter, I mean, you, you get gas. It's it's been pretty reliable. It's been somewhat affordable. It's less affordable today because of some of the buying energy policy. And um and it's not what what what's happening today. The reason gas is expensive today. It's not because we're pumping less oil today. It's about the future. It's about the government deciding to basically make it harder to be energy independent. And I'm talking about carbon-based energy. Because um, I read yesterday that, if I'm not mistaken, the last three months, the American oil industry has produced more oil than it ever has. But, but the, the, the oil, excuse me, the price is based on speculative markets. What do you believe oil will be a year from now, two years, three years, four years, five years from now? And we're making these fundamentally monumental decisions. I mean, this is not whether or not we put a stoplight at this crossroads or not. I mean, this is how do we par- power the, the largest economy man has ever known. And, and, and one political party says, decarbonize. I mean, that, that's the answer. Decarbonize in a decade or else. We all burn to a crisp. And that's the absurdity of that. And it's more absurd that intelligent people believe that. Take a break. Back in a few. So, so Ford Motor Company announces in February it's opening a $3.5 billion plant in Michigan by 2026. 2,500 employees uh, becoming the first automaker in America to manufacture the next gen lithium iron phosphate battery but they were relying on technology from a company, Contemporary Amperex Technology. That's the largest manufacturer in the world of EV batteries. Guess what? It's a Chinese company. And they were going to qualify for enormous incentives under the Inflation Reduction Act. So when I think Inflation Reduction Act, I think EV batteries. Oh, yeah. I mean, don't you? Of course. Yeah. I mean, it makes know, perfect I, sense. Let, let's incentivize green energy and call it the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, as far as I'm concerned, the Gamecocks have won five national championships. Sure. Yeah. Easy to say. Yeah, that's right. May win two more. <laughs> May win it this year, Rip. right? Right? <laughs> Maybe I mean, if so. We just make it up as we go yeah. and nothing factual matters. Again,
2: it's easy to say
0: anything. Let, let's go to the phone. <laughs> and
2: uh, and our next caller identifies as Tyler from Spartanburg. Uh-oh. We've been talking about that. Hello, <laughs> Tyler from Spartanburg.
10: <laughs> Good morning. You know, I I do have – I want to disagree with you a little bit about the debate coming up. Lester Holt and Kristen Welker will be a problem. I think Hugh Hewitt will be fair, and I think he will keep the debate balanced and will not allow it to get out of control like uh, uh, these debates have in the past with all liberals out there. Um, I don't, you know, I don't just, I don't agree with, with a whole lot of what he says, but I think he is fair. Um, secondly, this green energy stuff, you know, nobody knew that the inflation reduction act was going to include EV plants and, and all this kind of stuff. But we also didn't know that build back better was going to mean, uh, 8% interest rates and 10 million illegal aliens and, and things like that. Um, uh, coming across the uh, the border, and also, uh, you know, Sammy, my, my my longtime friend, called earlier and said the last couple of weeks have been fantastic programming and a joy to listen to. I just want to add right in that I agree 100% with what he said. This has been some of the best talk radio ever the last couple of weeks. Keep it up.
0: Thank you, Charles. That's very kind of you. Well,
2: um, it yeah, wasn't Tyler from Spartanburg, right. it was obviously Charles from the and,
0: and, but we know Charles <laughs> to be a big Tiger fan, yeah. so he was a bit a bit sarcastic as he tends to be yeah, at times, a bit a bit honory and sarcastic. Charles would be kind of known for that, to be to be honest with you. And I think he wears that with a badge of honor. But Charles is a very thoughtful person and very informed. And and the last two weeks have been more dedicated to that. And I told Rev when we left yesterday, I said, Man, I'm really proud of what we've done. Because we've engaged a, a, a fairly informed group of people. And I'd like to believe that I'm informed. I mean, I, I don't have everything figured out. I've never said I've got everything figured out. But I am informed. Uh, I form my opinion not based on, you know, just w- which way the wind blows. I mean, I base my opinion on the information I gather, uh, my deciphering the information, understand what I think is, is BS and what I think is trustworthy and, and credible. And, and I think you guys know me enough that I'll call Fox News out as quick as I will CNN. It's not my worldview. I mean, when I read something that makes me, kind of empowers me to believe that, okay, my worldview is right because that article says this. I'm always questioning the intent of that article, the motivation of the, of the writer. And, and, and people like Charles make this a lot of fun. And, and I mean that sincerely because I know you're out there listening and i owe it to you to be serious i owe it to you to be informed i owe you it to be i owe it to you um to try and inspire and 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 i guess the the greatest compliment we could have paid to us is how many of you have taken the time to call in because most don't do that i mean most people let it ramble around in their heads and they'll tell their wives or husband or kids about this crazy guy on the radio saying these things that were so ridiculous and outlandish and i do believe this i do believe that jeff and williams and some of the others add to the flavor of conversation. And I respect them calling in and having an opinion. I, I know they disagree with the majority of what I say. They know that I disagree with the majority of what they say. But I'm allowed to say my piece. Why shouldn't they be allowed to say theirs? So let's go to the phone. And Williams is on the
2: line right now to say more of his piece. Hello, Williams, you're on. Good morning. Hey,
7: again, hey, hey, you know, I was riding down on um, some of no gas. It's two dollars eighty-six
2: cent. <laughs> We're losing hey, you're you, Williams. Break, you're breaking up.
7: Oh yeah. <laughs> hey. Okay, let's talk about Mike Williams. He worse than John. He's garbage.
0: You're talking about Mike, Mike Johnson. Johnson. You're talking about speaker Mike Johnson.
7: Well, Yeah, Mike Johnson. Okay, he 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 voted against the um the certification of um presidential election, right? He did. Yeah, he don't. That's why he don't like everybody. Everybody out in cemetery died for democracy. And one more thing, um, they had a ten-year ban on assault rifles. Right. I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I'm
0: listening to you. I mean, you just keep. I mean, I, I'll, 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 comment on your comments, but I want
7: the floor to be yours, and you conclude your okay, thoughts. Okay, okay. okay. They had a ban on salt rising for ten years.
0: They were, they had, it Will Williams, we're not yeah, here. We have, I'm sorry. We have, have a, a ban connection. Yeah, if you can get in a better area and call back, we'll put you front of the line. But we can't understand but about every third or fourth word. Um, you're saying, I would probably agree with about every third or fourth word William says. (laughs) It's the other two or three in between that one word I agree with that that I would have a problem with. Um, I mean, gas is what? I think I saw it this morning, 279-ish, somewhere thereabout. We're going to see a lot of demand destruction here sooner than later because the economy is going to hit a wall probably in three months. I mean, I'm not Jamie Dimon. Dimon said September is when the consumer would tap out. We're beginning to see a lot of signs that the consumer is tapped out. The one thing that nobody knew the answer to, and there are a few people now that I think a little more fine-tuning the answer, nobody knew how long $6.5 trillion of stimulus would stimulate the economy. Nobody knew that. Um, And I think we're beginning to find out, okay, Jamie Dimon said September of 23. We're in November of 23. We're beginning to see some signs, delinquencies, foreclosures, credit card balances increasing, Payments due are going longer than 30 days. I mean, it's obvious now that consumers tapped out. How long can they fake it? I don't know. But, but I think Jamie Dimon knew that when we stimulate the economy to that degree, and I'm not talking about $800 billion tarp. I'm talking about nearly $7 trillion. The M2 money supply went from $15 trillion to $22 trillion in a year. There's no economist, there's no expert, there's no financial manager that knew how long it would take for that to work itself through the system. And I'm predicting that early 2024 is when you really begin to see the, the, the realities of the unreal proposition we did uh, in reaction to COVID. I mean, it was reckless, irresponsible. It's going to be generational. I, I'm, I'm convinced of that. Take a break. 843 few- is our number, last hour of this Wednesday morning. We got to put this guy on payroll. He's with us every single day. <laughs> he's with us again today. Fox News Radio's Ryan Schmelz. And I told Josh this morning, let's get Ryan on, man, because he's really kept us in the loop on the speaker's race. And now the House voting on a $14 billion Israeli only aid package. Ryan, is the intent to vote today? Good morning, sir. How are you? And is the good intent- morning. I'm doing yeah. good. And is the intent to vote today?
3: That is the intent to vote today, yes. I think we're executive vote maybe around 2 or 3 o'clock, a little bit later this afternoon. Uh, the, the House is, you know, we're, we're about to hear from Republicans they are having their first conference meeting since Speaker Johnson was elected Speaker of the House. So the intent is still to vote today. But obviously, whether or not they're able to wrangle the votes today, they're going to run into some issues in the Senate and the White House. Ryan, do we have any
0: idea how many Republicans in the House are not for an Israeli standalone bill we know where the senate is we don't know where the yeah. house is is there been any sort of head count
3: there's been skepticism but we don't have a specific whip count we also don't have a specific count of how many hard noses there are and there might not be any so i think we're going to probably find that out a little bit later on today but right now the only thing we've seen is really skepticism of it but for the most part i think a lot of the conference does support the idea of you know having an israeli aid package separate from a uh, ukraine aid package it's something that has been really popular with the republican party it's something a lot of them have been pushing for and it looks like for the most part they're on the same page with it and
0: it's not just israeli only it's also offset by cutting some of the irs funding provided under the inflation reduction act do we know where the, the membership stands there
3: Yeah, exactly. And that's where they're going to run into some issues, because that is a non-starter for Democrats that has pretty much made this bill dead on arrival. If it gets to the Senate, it is something Democrats are very much uh, against. And it's obviously something that the Biden administration has said that the president would veto if it gets to his desk. So uh, while it might be something that might be politically popular with the party, it's just simply not going to go through.
0: Well said. Thank you, Ron. Appreciate your time. Hey, have a good one. Thank you. So, So let's play hypothetical here for a second. You ready? So hypothetically, Josh, Rev, Mm -hmm. hypothetically, the membership, uh, the votes are there for Israeli alone. But the membership says, okay, we'll go along with that. Some of the Democrats may say, okay, I mean, you know, you're playing a little bit politics here because, I mean, if you're a Democrat and the Republicans introduce a bill that only funds aid to Israel and you vote no, do you really want to be that. So, so you've kind of got them in a box. And that's why, I mean, it's always political. I mean, there's no question about it. Uh, but if you're a Democrat and you want to support Israel, but you don't want to, you know, go against the administration of the Inflation Reduction Act, the hiring of new IRS agents, wh- wh- where do you go from there? And if you are a Republican, would you be in favor, Josh Rev, of saying, okay, no Ukrainian funding, Israeli-only funding, but I'll, I'll, I'll pull back the, the ask for the offset. In other words, keep the IRS agents, keep the Inflation Reduction Act as is, and let's send $14 billion, forget the $66 billion that they want to send to Ukraine, and that's McConnell carrying the water for the military-industrial complex. I mean, that's all that is. Of course. I mean, that's the Romney-McConnell-Graham wing of the GOP that is getting less influential and less so influential, but they're still influential. I mean, there, there's no doubt about it. It's almost like when America first shows up, a lot of us wish that the second we showed up, the military-industrial complex and globalist mindset goes out of the door. No. I mean, that's at least an equal and opposite reaction or resistance, probably more so. I mean, for every ounce of force the America-firsters have, the globalist-interventionist military-industrial complex corporate America cabal have at least— Double three, four times the resistance force because they become or have been so entrenched, so involved, so many fundraisers, so many contributions um that it's just not going to work that way, and, and a lot of us had this expectation that wow, I mean this is going to be easy.
6: <laughs>
0: rest assured it's not going to be easy, and probably shouldn't be easy to maintain um i mean there's a price to maintain the status quo in Washington. It's a significant price, and they paid quite the price, corporate America and the military-industrial complex, to make sure when the big decisions are made, they aren't left out in the cold. If we're talking health care, it would be the insurance companies and big pharma. You're not going to make a decision about health care without big pharma and the insurance companies in the middle of it. You're not going to make a big decision about foreign aid without the military-industrial complex and corporate America being in the in the middle of it. I do love the fact that McConnell is trying to sell this to his voters as an AIDS, excuse me, a, a jobs package. I mean, all the money that, you know, the money's not going to Ukraine. The money's going to defense contractors, American workers who build missiles and bombs. And, and benefits the and United States. And guns right yeah, here, that, the workers. A, it's a jobs program is what it is. Rand Paul said the voters of Kentucky ain't buying it. <laughs> they just don't believe that uh, for a
2: second. And, and I'm thinking that what do we complain about as Republican voters a lot? That Republicans, they do get a majority, they get in charge, and then they just go along, get along, and nothing really changes. So I kind of like the idea of them sticking to it and say, all right, here's your separated bills, and here's the offset, and
0: that's non-negotiable. So you're okay with Israel getting no financial aid? <laughs> well, that well does, that, that's where we're right.
1: Josh is okay with that. I know he is. Yeah, I'm fine with J- Josh's that. Josh's
0: generation's okay with that. You and I? Or a little bit more, you know, bothered by it. Now,
2: that. is there a point where the administration would say, you know, okay, they would cave and say, we'll give you the offsets because we think uh, the Israeli uh, aid is that important?
0: Well, here's what I'll say: if the Israeli aid is that urgent, you said important, that's a different word. If the Israeli aid is that urgent, we've all screwed it up. I mean, if if Israel can't do what they need to do for the next six, eight, ten, twelve months without this aid then we've all goofed up. I mean, there's no reason. Important is a different word than urgent. Mm-hmm. So as we sort through, maybe the appropriations uh, process, I just can't believe that Israel is vulnerable today because America won't send $15, $16 billion in the name of, uh, of national defense. I, I just don't buy that for the life of me. There's too deep a relationship there between the countries. There's too many sharing of assets. And, and you know, we, we, we've argued for a couple of weeks that Israel's kind of the R&D proving grounds of the American military-industrial complex. So, so when, when somebody on the pro-funding Israel or Ukraine side say, hey, if we don't do it today, we're putting Jews at risk, I just don't buy that. I mean, we, we can have a philosophical debate about whether or not to do it. Josh says no, you and I say yes. And I'm being a bit hypocritical. I mean, I know I am. I am being very, very hypocritical in my stance on Israel, juxtaposed to my stance on on Ukraine. But you can't really throw rocks at me because I admit that I'm being hypocritical. I am heavily influenced by my adherence to the biblical worldview. I said that on day one. I've not changed my mind there. But there is hypocrisy in saying you're a non interventionist but you want to give Israel an extra 15 billion bucks that we don't have. Let's go to the phone.
2: Joey and Florence. Good morning. You're on
11: morning ken hello how are you you're on the air yeah well you're talking about something i know a little bit about before the break and that was real estate and uh i just wanted to let you know that i don't think there's a bubble coming there's going to be a slowdown but real estate nationally has increased 38 percent since the own of covid and that like you say that was a government induced um people decided they wanted to stay home and they needed bigger houses and uh and that had a lot to do with that, but we all need to keep in mind that real estate over the past forty years has uh, has has gone up three point eight percent a year, and we're continuing that trend. And we had a we had a massive increase because of COVID, but inventory is going to be our problem. Uh, and and America first is home ownership.
0: But and, see, Joey, I believe inventory is a problem, but affordability is a much bigger problem.
11: I agree with that. It, it, so, you know, how do we make
0: right. it more affordable? How do we make a home more affordable to the working man and woman? Because I'm with you. I mean, and I do believe this. I'll give you an optimistic. I believe that South Carolina will be somewhat insulated from what happens in some of these other countries because we're an in-migration destination right now. People are coming to South Carolina. That's going to demand homes and and shelter. But but how do we make how you're a smart guy? You've been doing it a long, 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 long time successfully for a long time. How do we make housing more affordable in America today?
11: Well, the first thing we need to do is we need to get government is a, is a barrier to affordable housing. Everywhere you turn in the development business, they're making things harder and harder and harder to do harder to develop.
9: And more expensive.
11: And, gonna, and more expensive. Um, so that's one thing that we need to work on. Uh, and that, that's going to be, that's going to be one thing we've got to do because to get affordable housing, you got to have, you got to have houses. Um, we got interest rates are going to have to come down some, and they're not going to be 3% again. I, I just don't see that coming. And um, the one problem we have with inventory is if somebody's got a, a 3% loan and they want to upsize, they're not going to jump into an 8% mortgage right now. But I think you'll see rates, I guess, with the election year coming up, I think you'll see rates easing some. Probably, I think by uh, the spring, it'll probably be in the mid-fives is what we're hearing from some experts who really probably don't know what they're talking about. but. Um, so, interest rates get the government off our backs, and there's going to have to be incentives to get people in houses. Because, hey, uh, the average homeowner has a net worth of $350,000 in the United States of America. The average renter has a net worth of $3,000. And that's a statistic you can't, you, you know, you're never going to have the American dream unless you own a home. That's the way you get there for most of the people. So, we, we've got to do things to make home ownership affordable, and to get people to where they can have the American dream.
0: But but making, let, let me be devil's advocate for a second. Making home ownership affordable distorts the free market, doesn't it? I mean, doesn't that create, in essence, the bubble when we try to make housing more affordable by keeping interest rates real, real low, pumping liquidity into the economy? I mean, the Fed's got $2.5 trillion of mortgage-backed securities on its balance sheet.
11: Right. But don't think the government's not had – it's just like healthcare. The government is involved in real estate that has been forever with FHA, Fannie Mae, and Freddie Mac.
0: But, but what I'm FHA's saying is the government that. has worked on housing, making housing more affordable.
11: It has. And there's, there's more work to do. Uh, uh, it, it, and You're right. The loans and, and the, F, the FHA, VA have always done that, and it'll be there. But um, um, the, the, the funding is there. It's just a little more expensive right now. We got to do a better job of, uh, of, of of getting inventory out there and making housing affordable.
0: Thank you, Joey. Appreciate that, my man. It's a conundrum. I mean, it really and truly is. And and I love my realtor friends. I mean, Joey's a friend of mine. I, I have great respect for Joey, and uh, you know, one, one of the best friends I have in this world. He and I've argued back and forth about you know, realty, a real estate business, and and this law, this rule, this um. This lawsuit that came down, and I've read enough of the Wall Street Journal for whatever reason, the Wall Street Journal is antagonistic toward realtors. I don't have any idea. I mean, for whatever reason, WSJ.com ain't a big fan or friend of realtors. But I don't understand how we get to a place of housing being more affordable without significant asset depreciation. I mean, I, 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 they're, they're smarter people than I. I mean, there are much brighter people than I that are working diligently on this industry and this business, because Joey's right. I mean, it's an integral part of the American economy. I mean, it's probably the most integral part of the American economy. I'll give you an idea. I mean, you know, the one thing that I always tracked when I was in the truck body business was home building. I mean, that that was very important to me. Guess where you can't build a home? In the woods. That means you got to clear land. That means you need something to haul that debris off with. That means somebody's more than likely going to need a truck bed. So, so it was always important to me. I mean, I paid attention to interest rates and the cost of steel was probably the most important thing. The raw cost of material. I mean, that, that was the most important thing in my world. Um, but, but one of the major things I paid attention to was how many houses are we building? How many houses are we selling? How many new construction starts are there? I've never technically been in the real estate business, but I've been on the periphery all of my life. And when housing struggles, the economy struggles. And that economy includes truck body manufacturing and and truck sales and backhoe sales and bulldozer, earth-moving equipment. I, I I think we've got ourselves in a place where it's inevitable that we have significant asset depreciation. It's the only way to get things back in some proper and reasonable and free market alignment. Take a break. That's not popular with my realtor friends, and I'm sure it's not. But, uh, you know, I tend to call it like I see it. Take a break. Back in a few. So here's where the busy head syndrome kicks in. I told Ray every other break. I can. I mean, I've got one of the answers. Um, you know, the, the, the realtor that called a second ago, and, and I don't want to say took exception, but he said, I don't, you might be painting a darker picture than what reality is going to be. I just, when I look at the math and I look at the numbers, I mean, you're right. Washington operates on funky math, and it's not Democrats. It's not just Republicans. Both parties try to figure out a way to make two and two not equal four. But at some point in time, two and two equaling four is going to eventually be your comeuppance. Here's what we could do. You ready? I mean, if I believe that that asset depreciation is inevitable and there's going to be a big decline in value of homes— because of interest rates and the, the liquidity we pumped into the economy drove up prices I think anybody will believe I mean anybody that has a, an elementary understanding of economics understands that if you pump that much money in the economy everything is going to be more expensive and and combine that with cheaper interest rates and if you had to raise rates to address inflation and try to pump the brakes on the economy that creates a quandary uh, a conundrum as I like to say in the housing sector in particular, but what if the government? And I'm not some guy that believes government, but government did a lot of this. So why couldn't the government loosen or, or or incentivize the rules that that police assumable mortgages? Let's say that Rev is trying to sell Josh's house, and Rev's mortgage is at three and three quarter percent, and Josh goes to the bank to buy that three hundred thousand dollar house that Rev has a mortgage of three and, what did I say, three and three-quarter, mm-hmm. uh, and Josh goes to the bank and says, wow, Rev, I mean, your payment's this and my payment's going to be that. What if the government worked as kind of a, a go-between or an intermediary and allowed Josh to assume Rev's loan? He's still got to come up with a down payment. He's still, still got to come up with the margin, the difference. In other words, Rev owes 200000 Josh has got to pay Rev the difference in down payment and another mortgage. But but two thirds of his mortgage is at the three and three quarter percent. What if the government got together and said, Okay, we've got a problem. We've created a bubble. It's an asset bubble. It's not, you know, it's not a um a tulip bubble. It's not a, you know, a, a college football bubble. That's a story for another day. We've created that, but that's a story for another day. Um but but I, I just think that may be a way, because why would Rev sell his house or why would why would Josh buy a house that ref has financed at three and three quarter at 8% when he could buy the mortgage at three and three quarter and fund the ballots with a new loan and, and the down payment. I mean, there might be a way. I mean, there are smarter people than I rest assured that that could figure this out. I don't know what the bank's requirements are Are assumable mortgages illegal. uh, Maybe, I don't know in some places they are can negotiate assumable loans, but what if the government in its infinite wisdom and heavy hand, said uh, because of the situation we've gotten ourselves into, we're going to allow Josh to purchase. I mean, the bank's got to agree that Josh is creditworthy and can pay it back. It's got to be income and debt and all ratio and all that good stuff. But but out of that comes Josh assuming Rev's mortgage. And Rev gets the money via down payment and another loan that Josh gets. and And Josh's payments are not what they would be if Josh had to buy that house at 8%. Because Rev's house at 8% is unaffordable. One less buyer. What happens when you got one less buyer? The price goes down a little bit. Two less buyers. The price goes down a little bit. Here we go with supply and demand. We always get back to supply and demand, but, but some incentivizing or allowing or deregulating of assumable mortgages could be not the silver bullet. There's no silver bullet here, but it could be an accommodating feature of the soon-to-be housing market. Let's go to the phone. Jeff and
2: Florence. Hello, Jeff. You're on the air
12: hey good morning um you know it's uh well this is a slippery slope conversation right here uh, you know that leads you back to another uh five years down the road when people walk away from mortgages um they did in 2008 uh, when you uh make mortgages affordable to people who shouldn't have them this is what you get amen um you know so the other thing is
0: but i'm trying to wiggle off the hook right now i'm running for office right. jeff <laughs>
12: Yeah, yeah. The other thing is, like, these these uh, private equity firms buying up assets um, are keeping the price artificially high right now, I think we could agree.
0: They've driven uh, the price the to, a, to an artificially high point, and now they're main—yeah, I'm no question about it. Uh, Goldman right. Sachs—I don't want to pick on them, but I do. Goldman Sachs created a financial division within their empire that invests solely in real estate. And I'm talking about residential. Yeah. I'm not talking about big buildings and office complexes. You would expect them to be involved in that. But I'm talking about neighborhoods. I mean, going in and buying the entire yeah. neighborhood or the entire street, and that's what's going to happen. I mean, you know, they've got the money. and They're going to up with more of our money.
12: Right. And you could do – there's another alternative. You could allow people to fraudulently overinflate their value, their assets, and they would qualify for better loans.
0: As long as they pay them back and nobody gets hurt, I don't have a problem with it.
12: Right, but you know, if, but if they, if if you just ignore the whole fraud part of that, it's a really good way to pay less interest.
0: But like I said, as long as the transaction comes to fruition and the bank gets paid and everybody walks away happy, I don't have any problem with that.
12: Right. So so people, you know, absolutely should be able to just like make up whatever they want financially. They can't. Um, I mean, do
0: you really believe that? Do you believe the bank lets people make up whatever they want do their diligence. and they take the person at their word? Uh,
12: well, uh, apparently, if you have a banker in your pocket like uh, Justice Kennedy, you know how you get done? a banker in your pocket? You yes. do what
0: you tell them you're going to do, the Boy bank trusts you to pay home. them back. That's, yeah, that's how, I mean, if, there, if there's a such thing as getting a banker in your pocket, you get that banker in your pocket by being a really good customer, and every time you borrowing money, you figure out a way to pay him back.
12: Yeah, or it could be like the word that James Comer couldn't say on Sean Hannity last night. You could bribe them. like.
0: Well,
2: you're talking oh, about you're Biden talking now.
12: About <laughs> you're talking well, about the I mean, Biden. Like James Comer. James Tomer, Sean Hannity literally had to beat the word bribe out of him last night. Did you hear that?
0: I didn't watch Hannity. I'm in bed by then. You're talking about the 2017 yeah. transfer that, that clearly shows who the big guy was?
12: Yeah. yeah. No? It's tax evasion now. That, that's what they're going with now because they don't think it's bribery. Uh, Sean Hannity literally had to had to put the word in James Comer's mouth.
0: You're talking yeah, about the Chinese that, company that, that paid the Hunter Biden company that paid Hunter Biden privately that paid James and Sarah Biden, if I'm not mistaken, that paid Jim and Sarah Biden, that paid Joe Biden. The, right. the, you're talking about the exactly. five million the Chinese company paid the Biden Enterprise that Joe ends up with, or excuse me, the big guy ends up with ten percent.
12: Right. Hey, uh, just, he got just, shorted uh, though because uh, he only okay. got.
0: Here's what I can't yeah. figure: he only got forty grand. By my math, fifty grand yeah. would have been ten percent.
12: And and they called it out exactly. I don't know why Donald Trump's DOJ wouldn't prosecute this because they knew about it.
0: Well, I mean, it looks to me like they're fairly well pursuing it now. I mean, they've got bank records that yeah. show that.
12: <laughs> uh, it, it'll be interesting to see how this goes. I am watching it, I, and you know, I'm interested. If anybody did anything wrong, throw them in jail. But yesterday, <laughs> let's let's just take stock of where we ended up yesterday. Yesterday. Uh, Tommy Tuberville continued to block over 300 nominations. 87 percent of the senior military personnel is going to be affected by the end of the year. His Republican colleagues are—they're uh, beside themselves. Lindsey Graham don't agree with him often. Uh, was was great yesterday. Um, you know, the the, up ne- the neocons and, 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 are irate.
0: And, and, I get that. I mean, the, the neocons are beside themselves.
12: Yeah, and, and I mean like if we're really concerned about American, you know, readiness and safety, you agree with what Tupperville's doing?
0: Yeah, one hundred percent. Taxpayers do not okay. need to pay for the travel expenses of members of the military to go have an abortion in another state. That's not the job of a taxpayer. I support Tommy Turbiville one yeah. hundred percent in his stand against taxpayer funded abortion in the American military. I can't be and more and clear than if that.
12: It's for medical re- and regardless if it's for medical reasons. The only you're, thing you're the Biden like administration has
0: suffered. to do is agree that taxpayers are not going to pay for travel expense for a woman to go to another state and have an abortion as a member of the military. If the Biden administration strikes that, every military promotion happens as it always has.
12: Okay. So, okay with 87% of readiness of the senior military not being filled. I am not Got okay
0: that. with the American taxpayer. Yeah. Yeah. Paying for travel expenses for a member of the military to go to another state and kill a baby—I'm not okay with that. Yeah, whatever it takes to stop that from happening, I'm on
12: board. Yeah, so got that. That's that's one thing that the Republicans. So so here's
0: did. what I could say, Jeff. The you know, we were talking thing, yesterday about the the right. the Democrats never opposing abortion. The Democrats are willing to put American security at risk to guarantee a woman's right for taxpayers to pay for her to go to another state and have an abortion. That's how enthusiastic they are about killing babies. Yeah. They're willing to put American Again. safety and security at risk so a woman can go to another state and have the taxpayer foot the bill to kill a baby. Wow. So so military
12: personnel, okay, that uh, serve uh, the U.S. government and assigned where the government tells them to go can't get medical treatment. And you're okay with that?
0: I am okay with a taxpayer not being forced to pay. It's taxpayer-funded. If a woman wants to go to another state— No, Jeff, you know you're you're misleading here. If a woman wants to go to another state as a member of the military and have an abortion, she can do it today. She can go today, but the Biden administration demands of the taxpayer to pay for her travel expense. That's how passionate a Democrat is about abortion today.
12: So, so Tommy Tuberville risking the government. Well, let let
0: me ask you this. Can the woman go to another state and have an abortion today if she chooses?
12: Why would she have to go to another state?
0: Because some states have very restrictive laws on abortion.
12: Oh, right. Yeah, they restricted
0: that. And some yeah, states well, are okay with killing babies rate. in the third trimester. But but answer my question. Can a woman today? Yeah. Okay, she can. So so what is the hang-up? What is the hang-up? The what taxpayer doesn't want to, to pay for it. Turbyville thinks it's unfair to the taxpayer to pay for that woman who can today, if she chooses, travel to another state and have an abortion turbyville does not believe that is the responsibility of the taxpayer but rather the female in the military who's choosing to have an abortion what, and
3: and and, so and the Democrats the medical are, medical are so passionate about allowing just, women to have an abortion right there.
12: excuse me you just you just said something really great there she chooses to have an abortion sure what if she has to what if she has to have one
0: under I mean I, you, you're losing me there.
12: No, no. What if What if her life is in jeopardy? What if carrying that pregnancy is going to threaten her ability to have children in the future? She should
0: do what every other woman does, go have an abortion. But she can't. Sure she can. Uh, Tommy Tuberville's blocked. No, her, so she you know, can she go could. have that abortion today if she chooses. It's just not going to be paid for. The travel expenses are not going to be paid for by the taxpayer.
12: So she doesn't have a right to medical if her life is on the line. She absolutely does. Okay, but the government she has, she has no her, right her, to her demand behavior. of the
0: taxpayer to pay her travel expense for
12: a life threat. Life. She has no right the, under the any US,
0: circumstance to US. force the taxpayer to pay for her travel expense.
12: You you say force? Who pays for her medical now? The the, the, for the anything? well, I mean, it's it's exclusive of uh, abortions.
0: It's exclusive of okay, travel expense. If she needs a root canal, who pays for it? The government. The taxpayer. Okay. If she's got a hangnail, who pays for it? The, guy, the taxpayer. It's taxpayer-funded okay, insurance. That's license what Democrats procedure. do. He's equating a root canal a with an abortion.
12: Procedure. Yeah, well, I mean, if it's, a it's not
0: a denial to pay for the procedure, Jeff. It's denial to pay for the travel expense. Her insurance will pay for the abortion. State, her insurance does not allow her to be reimbursed for travel expense. The Biden administration so is so that, no passionate right. about women being allowed to have abortions <laughs> that they're going to force the taxpayer not just pay for the abortion, pay for her room and board and getting
12: there. Yeah. So, so just, just, just to be clear, that's where the Republicans landed on that, not not supporting the military. Then they they keep George Santos, and. They
0: put forward a bill they know is not going
7: to support
12: Israel.
0: I I am more. I understand your frustration. Thank you, Jeff. Appreciate it. I understand just frustration. I am more optimistic today than I have been in a long time about the. I don't know the, the 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 prospects of America First. It seems to me that we've got a very mild mannered, non attention seeking speaker who puts his money where his mouth is. Now we'll see we'll see how this sorts itself out but but he basically said that i'm not my caucus will not support additional funding for ukraine it's my job to represent the consensus of my caucus and i would imagine they'll say grace over some of these things in private i mean you and i will never hear some of these heated conversations but out of that came a bill that will fund aid to israel no aid to ukraine and ask for a financial offset by making cuts to IRS agents in the Inflation Reduction Act. I am very comfortable, almost ecstatic, Mm -hmm. that that's the case. But Turbyville is doing all the Biden administration has to do to advance all these promotions is to say, okay, lady, you can have an abortion, but you've got to pay your way to get there. That's it. If the Biden administration went to the Senate today and said, look, the the taxpayer will pay for your abortion, but they shouldn't have to pay for your travel expense. It's done. Take a break. Back in a few. 843 6610937 is our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Nick in Lexington. Good morning. You're on. Good morning.
13: Ken, uh, uh, unfortunately, I was hanging through Jeff's call. If an airman in at, at Shaw Air Force Base had a medical emergency and it was life of the mother, I thought that was legal in this state, so wouldn't they just do it in this state? Yeah. So what he's arguing, and I don't know a state that doesn't have that caveat. So what he's arguing isn't really possible because it would be legal in every state.
0: But it's the MSNBC it argument. The it's, it's, but it's the MSNBC mainstream media argument. Agreed. I mean, Agreed. It, 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 When you look at the polling, and, and I've looked at the polling, it, it, it never says – that no, Turbyville's not trying to stop a woman from having an abortion. Turbyville is trying to stop the taxpayer from being on the hook, for the travel expenses that lady incurs when she has to travel to another state to have an abortion in her second trimester or whenever she chooses. And however lax that state's laws are, that's what Turbyville's criticism and, and his stand is against. It's not whether a woman should have an abortion or not. I mean, I would imagine he's got an opinion about that, but, but he's not holding up promotions because of that.
13: Agreed. But the whole point is their argument is, well, if it's life of the mother, but all of the, you know, then they, they don't have to have travel expenses paid because they can get it where they are. Correct. You, point. you could go to the
0: hospital in Richland County or Sumter County or Florence County. That's right. And then have that done.
13: So they got no travel expenses. So, I mean, it's really a moot argument is what I was trying to say. But that's not why I called. Have you heard RFK? And it's just another food for thought, because I think your argument of the assumable mortgage is excellent, except that don't help me with new houses, (laughs) to be honest. But I really think that's a really good argument. But he said he wanted the Fed to almost have two interest rates and one for individual home ownership that he kept around 4%.
0: A standard, that, a, a standard across the board interest rate for homeowners,
13: just for, for the, individual homeowners. Gotcha. No, and that um, maybe you would lower the down payment or give them a break on a foreclosure.
0: I, I would listen to so, that.
13: So, I mean, if you incentivize the foreclosure, uh, it would be you know it would be better a better deal.
0: Nick, how, how, about, how about if we do this? How about if 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 I mean I don't need to be in the room, but but what if we just revamp the Fed? I mean, what what if we tear down what the Fed does today, and and recreate a new Fed? I mean, a new, a new group that monitors monetary policy and tries to control inflation. Uh, I I just think the Fed has gotten so convoluted, and so confusing. I don't want to say it's outlived its existence because I do believe that that we need a group monitoring monetary policy and and keeping an eye on inflation i'm just not sure So, so maybe that could be the beginning of the revamping and rebranding of the fed
13: well i i agree i mean it's really counter what i think because every time the government injects their opinion so to speak is when we have these issues you know you let the free market sometimes do the free market will correct itself
0: it will Thank you, Dick. Appreciate that. But if you think about it, let's let's stay here for a second. So, I mean, small government can just talking about more government here. But (laughs) let's say that we did um, allow the Fed to dictate the rate on equity lines and car loans, but we did agree that homes are different. I mean, homes are a little bit different. That that is the largest purchase most people will ever make in in their lives. And we put a standard rate. I mean, maybe it fluctuates, but it doesn't have these wild gyrations. It's not, it's not three and a quarter one day and, you know, a year later, 8%. I mean, you fundamentally change the entire, I mean, it, the, the housing market. And, and, guys, you're not just changing the housing market. I mean, I, I'm explaining this as best I know how. I built truck beds. I've never built a home in my life. But I built truck beds. And my life was good when home builders were building homes. My life was not good when home builders were not building homes. It is such a an essential feature of our economy. Should it be? I don't know. I don't have any idea. Or is home buying and home building and the real estate industry is it a bigger part of our economy than it should be? I don't know. I mean, if we're going to have that debate, then let's have that debate. But but if I'm buying a, a 25, 30, 35, 40, well, I mean, 60, 65, 70, $75,000 automobile, that's not a life changing purchase. It's a big purchase, no question about it. And it costs too much. But, but I mean, that's, not a, that's not a 30 year. I'm not married to something for 30 years. I mean, if I signed that 30 year mortgage. I'm on the hook. You know, whether you move and relocate or downsize or, you know, get bigger homes, I mean, people make a lot of those decisions, but it is fundamentally important to the American economy. Uh, I mean, automobiles are important. I'm not saying they aren't. I mean, you know, fleets of cars and, I mean, you're talking about businesses. I mean, there are tremendous investments made in in the auto industry. But but I sign a five-year note and my payment's $100 more than I thought it would be because of an increase in interest rates. I didn't fundamentally change my life. But if I thought I could borrow $250,000 to buy a house and all of a sudden I can't buy but, borrow but $160,000, to keep my payment at a certain level where my, you know, income to debt ratio stays within, within bounds of the bank. And I get the blessings that's fundamentally, I mean, that, that's life changing. And, and, and that's, that's how essential housing is to our economy. And, and you can't undo what we've done. I think Nick, I think Joey, I think everybody would agree that, that the, you know, the, the housing economy's become too influenced, too distorted, too manipulated by things that don't necessarily have anything to do with housing. And, and the Fed has driven this. I mean, the Fed has $2.5 trillion of mortgage-backed securities on its balance sheet today. You know what my question is? Why? <laughs> Why? Right. Why does the Fed today have $2.5 trillion in mortgage-backed securities on its, what, 8 or $9 trillion balance sheet? I mean, I'd love for somebody who can speak my language. I'm not talking about one of these Yale economists or Harvard economists. I'm talking about somebody who would explain it to me in a way that I could. What led you down that? I mean, I understand asset purchasing or, excuse me, bond purchasing. And I understand buying. I mean, I, you, you, you buy the government debt to pump the liquidity into the economy and give the government somewhere or give the government debt somewhere uh, to reside. But, but that's a lot of mortgage-backed securities
7: and it manipulates and distorts the housing market. We'll talk tomorrow. Enjoy your day.